Okay, good evening, everybody. Welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings, uh, session number 73, I believe. And tonight is a very exciting class because we are going to be talking about uh, the poem, which is my favorite Tolkien poem ever. Uh, that is Aragorn's poem about Baron and Luthien that he sings at Weathertop, which is where we've gotten up to in the story. And, um, we're going to be, uh, uh, so we're going to be, we're going to be talking about that. So here's, here's my agenda. Here's my plan just to make sure everybody knows so that you'll know exactly how far along this plan I get and how close we are to coming out the other side. So first tonight, we're going to look at the poem. So I read it through last night and your uh, assignment, you'll remember, was to read it through carefully yourself again and think it, think about it, think about the structure, uh, think about sort of what's going on in that poem. And I want to be thinking about it first entirely within the context of The Lord of the Rings as we've been reading it, right? Just thinking about it as part of the story that we've been uh, uh, just, you know, uh, its relevance to its immediate context. And in that light, after we do that with the poem itself, I then want to follow up by looking at the next paragraph after the poem, which is quite long, as you may remember. And that's when Strider gives the prose version, right, of, of the uh, Baron and Luthien story. He gives a kind of prose gloss afterwards, right? So I want to look at that then, too. And again, in the same way, thinking about its relationship to the poem and how it's relevant to this context, to this moment when Strider is telling this story to the hobbits. Then, after we do that, um, I want to go back and think a little bit more about this poem. Because, I mean, we could just kind of move on at that point, right? We would have sort of done it as far as this story is concerned. But I cannot forbear uh, to pause there because I think uh, this poem is such a big deal. You know, this poem is such uh, an important moment in Tolkien's creative life. Um that I really kind of don't want to leave it aside. There, are, you know, as I said last time, there aren't too many poems that I'm going to want to be like going back and bringing in all of the like earlier drafts and everything, and really focusing on that. I want to focus mostly on the Lord of the Rings itself, um, the published Lord of the Rings itself, uh, as we go through. Um, so I'm not going to be doing that with every poem, but there are two poems that I'm going to be doing that for, uh, where it's, I think it's, uh, I just can't, I, I can't go by without talking about it. And that's this poem and the A. Rendell was a Mariner poem. So after we talk about the poem and then we talk about Aragorn's prose explanation of the poem afterwards, then I want to go back and I want to look at the original draft of the poem and talk about the context in which the original draft of the poem emerges uh, in the place where it kind of first came out, which was the alliterative lay of the children of Hurin, uh, which Tolkien was writing about around about 19, 1919, 1920, uh, right around there. So um, we're going to look at those. So we're going to get to those things too. So we're going to read another entire version of this poem, the old version of this poem uh, before Tolkien had revised, he revised it several times between the original version and this version that we get in the published Lord of the Rings text. Um, so I'm not going to look at every at every intermediary um, uh, change, but we're definitely going to be uh, 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 be be looking at that. So that's the plan. I, I don't, as I say, I don't really think I'm going to be doing all of this in tonight's class. Uh, if we can get through the poem and the prose tonight, I, I think that will be. Uh, 
that will uh, be fairly ambitious. Uh, but just to let you know what we're going to do, and then, of course, we'll go back and we'll pick up and actually look at the attack on Weathertop, which, you know, some might argue is the important, you know, the important element of this chapter, right? But yours, in my... In my view, this is the second most important thing that happens in this chapter. Um, so I definitely think we can do this in two weeks, though. Not even worried about that. Um, so, uh, yeah. Yeah. And Kate, it is interesting that both of those two big poems that I'm talking about are in the are in the first volume. Um, it is actually something, Kate, that I would be sort of interested to think about a little bit as we move forward uh, in some ways, is the kind of trend of poetry that we get. I, I think that the, a couple things I would be interested in sort of studying as we go forward. One is the mere density of poems. Do we get more poems in the Fellowship of the Ring? It kind of seems like there are more poems in the Fellowship of the Ring, but I'm not 100% sure that there actually are. Um, I'd be interested to see that just in, just in sheer quantity of poetry, right, that we get in the earlier versus the later stuff. And then how does the later stuff uh, change? Because it seems like some of the later poems, uh, much of the later poetry is, is of a kind of, uh, of a different sort. Uh, and by later, I primarily mean like Two Towers and Return of the King poetry compared to Fellowship of the Ring poetry. Um, but um, yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, Ambrosius... Are really honest when you do get around to reading the history of Middle Earth. Yeah, uh, the, our, our discussions in the Mythgard Academy have been awesome. I mean, like that whole series has been. I mean, I don't know. Like it's been like a life changing thing for me. Uh, I mean, I, I, I I've been familiar with with that material, but I've never done a really close study of it before, and I have learned so much. It has been an immensely enriching experience. So, uh, um, definitely, uh, uh, definitely. Uh, uh, totally worth doing. Anyhow, okay. Um, so uh, let's um, let's let's keep moving. Let's go and and go back to the poem. So, um, where was I? I know where I am. This is where I am. Okay. Linden leaves. Of course, uh, the original name of the poem. Uh, that of the, of, the, of the first version of this poem was Light as Leaf on Linden Tree, which describes the dancing of Luthien. Uh, and you'll remember there's, a, there's, there's an echo of that still uh, in the modern version of the poem, um, with feet as light as linden leaves, uh, it says uh, in this poem. So uh, the, 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 the recollection of that is still there. Um, but uh, my title for the class is meant to sort of also play on the pun of the uh the leaves and and pages and things as well um okay um let's go back to the poem i'm going to um i'm gonna go ahead and read it again um it, it's it's a long poem it doesn't take that many minutes to read the whole thing but i want to make sure that we get the whole thing in our head and then go back and listen and it'll give us a chance to really hear when you hear the multiple stanzas in a row you get the 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 sort of overall rhythm and shape of it a little bit more in your ear so i, I want to do that 
and then I want to I want to go back and look at it stanza by stanza. Um, now, as I mentioned last time, this is one of the most intricate poems that he ever wrote. So the 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 rhyme scheme and the shape of this poem—it's a stanzaic poem, um, and in any stanzaic poem, you're generally like the the the. Um, the uh, shape is always important. There's a reason that they break it in, you know, the poet breaks it into stanzas uh, in this way. Uh, and with the, you know, the stanzaic form and the, the complex rhyme scheme, um, this is this is a poem that is very, very much in- interested in that. So we're going to talk about shape. We're going to talk about content. We're going to talk about relevance to the story. But first, let's listen so you can feel the rhythm. The leaves were long, the grass was green, the hemlock umbles tall and fair, and in the glade a light was seen of stars and shadows shimmering. Tenuviel was dancing there to music of a pipe unseen, and light of stars was in her hair and in her raiment glimmering. Their baron came from mountains cold, and lost he wandered under leaves, and where the elven river rolled he walked alone and sorrowing. He peered between the hemlock leaves and saw in wonder flowers of gold upon her mantle and her sleeves and her hair like shadow following. Enchantment healed his weary feet that over hills were doomed to roam and forth he hastened strong and fleet and grasped at moonbeams glistening. Through woven woods in elven home she lightly fled on dancing feet and left him lonely still to roam in the silent forest listening. He heard there oft the flying sound of feet as light as linden leaves, or music welling underground in hidden hollows quavering. Now withered lay the hemlock sheaves, and one by one with sighing sound, whispering fell the beechen leaves in the wintry woodland wavering. He sought her ever, wandering far, where leaves of years were thickly strewn, by light of moon and ray of star in frosty heavens shivering. Her mantle glinted in the moon, as on a hilltop high and far she danced, and at her feet was strewn a mist of silver quivering. When winter passed, she came again, and her song released the sudden spring, like rising lark and falling rain, and melting water bubbling. He saw the elven flowers spring about her feet, and healed again, he longed by her to dance and sing upon the grass untroubling. Again she fled, but swift he came, Tenuviel, Tenuviel, he called her by her elvish name, and there she halted listening. One moment stood she, and a spell his voice laid on her, Baron came, and doom fell on Tenuviel, that in his heart lay glistening. As Baron looked into her eyes within the shadows of her hair, the trembling starlight of the skies, he saw their mirrored shimmering. Tenuviel, the elven fair, immortal maiden elven wise, about him cast her shadowy hair and arms like silver glimmering. Long was the way that fate them bore, o'er stony mountains cold and gray, through halls of iron and darkling door, and woods of nightshade morrowless. The sundering seas between them lay, and yet at last they met once more, and long ago they passed away in the forest singing sorrowless. All right. Okay. So, with that, now uh, in your, and Belongsman, you're absolutely right. Uh, the rhythm really does dance uh, in the reading. This is a this is a dancing song, right? There's you know there's there's a lot of times I think uh, really most 
arguably all of Tolkien's poetry is really meant for reading aloud. Tolkien had such a good ear and loved uh, the sound of words, not just the shape of them on the page, but the sound of them in your ear. Um, but this one, it not only like you, uh, it, this is not just a, this is not just a singing poem, right? This is a dancing poem. Um, okay. So let's think about the structure. First of all, notice the lines, right? The lines are really simple uh, in, 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 in terms of rhythm, right? Um, this song is, you know, this poem is based on a very regular line structure. Sometimes Tolkien will vary the length of his lines, right? A very frequent one, of course, is that alternation between four beats and three beats, so that really you're kind of getting a long seven-beat line. Um, but he doesn't have that here, right? This, this is iambic tetrameter, just like... Um, uh, just like Hobbit meter, right? Um, and it's extremely regular. It's not perfectly regular, but it's it's extremely regular. Um, it forms a very basic rhythm, which very seldom varies. Not never, right? And it's important, therefore, to notice when it does vary, when we do get an interruption of the iambic tetrameter rhythm. But in general, it's very fluid. Now, Mike, you just made a really good observation. This poem is 90% Baron and Luthien met, and then 10% they did some stuff, right? That is absolutely true, and I think super important to understanding this poem. That last stanza is really important, but you're right, also totally overshadowed. You can say it's being set up by the rest of the poem. It's, you can also say it's totally overshadowed by the rest of the poem. It's not the point. The stuff that they did, which arguably is not only the most important part of their story, but also the most relevant part of their story, like, hey, isn't this about, like, standing up to the shadow and, like, being undaunted in the face of adversity and the shadow and everything, which is kind of, again, like the relevance to the Hobbit situation. It's, uh, that's not the focus of the poem, right? The poem, as you say, Mike, is 90% Baron meets Luthien, and that, that clearly, uh, is the, is the important thing. Um, but, um, uh, anyway, uh, yeah, JJ says it's probably what threw me whenever I read this poem prior to hearing the full story. Um, yeah, yeah, it does give, uh, I mean, if, if this is sort of your basis for the Baron and Luthien story, it's, um, the proportion is going to be surprising in the Silmarillion, right? Um, yeah. Anyway. Okay. So, um, let's, um, uh, let's, let's, let's go back to this first stanza. I want to be, I want to be, I want to be a little bit more, uh, 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 careful. We can't just jump to the end of the poem, right? That would, that would, that would not be, that would, that would just not be right. Um, so again, the rhythm, the leaves were long, the grass was green perfect iambic tetrameter line, right? The hemlock umbles tall and fair, and in the glade a light was seen of stars in shadow shimmering. Tenuviel was dancing there to music of a pipe unseen, and light of stars was in her hair and in her raiment glimmering. Perfect iambic tetrameter stanza, right? No real variations to the rhythm. So the very first thing that happens in this poem is the establishment of that very regular very danceable rhythm, right? It's, it is, uh, uh, there are a couple times, uh, Kate Neville, who I think is here tonight, gave an awesome talk on this poem. Well, on the, on the original poem, Lightest Leaf on Linden Tree at Mythmoot. Was that last year, Kate, that you gave your Lightest Linden, Lightest, uh, your, your, your Linden Leaf talk? Um, 
uh, I, I sort of thinking about some of the things that you said in that talk. Um, but one of the things she was like, it's basically four, four, so you can dance to it. Right. Um, and yeah, it does definitely feel like that. Now looking at the structure, the rhyme scheme. So although the rhythm is very simple, the rhyme scheme is not simple. Right. Another thing, by the way, that you'll notice is that there is some uh, enjambment of the lines, right? That is enjambment, you remember, is when one poetic line just goes into the next, when there's not a break at the end of the line. Um, and uh, notice how this uh, stanza is sort of shaped in that way. Uh, notice it's two sentences, right? The leaves were long, the grass was green, the hemlock umbles tall and fair, and in the glade a light was seen of stars and shadow shimmering, period, right? This is the, that's the first thing that happens. Tinuviel was dancing there to music of a pipe unseen, and light of stars was in her hair and in her raiment glimmering, period. So the stanza is also is syntactically broken up into two groups, uh, you know, into, into two sections, right? The first half, it, it, evenly, four lines and four lines. Um, now, when I talk about enjambment, notice the difference uh, in those first four lines. Notice the difference between the break at the end of line one, the break at the end of line two, and the lack of a break at the end of line three, right? Line three to line four is more enjammed than the other two because the first two lines are at breaking points in a list, right? The leaves were long, the grass was green, the hemlock umbles tall and fair, and in the glade, right? Um, so you get a natural pause at the end of the line. You don't get that at the end of line three. Of, uh, and in the glade, a light was seen of stars in shadow shimmering. If you put a break at the end of that line, you're doing it wrong. Right. That wouldn't be right uh, to say. And in the glade, a light was seen of stars in shadow shimmering. You, you can't do that. Right. This is one thought and it demands to be to sort of flow over. And that's something that we get. We don't get continuous in Jammet, Right. You know, it doesn't go straight from one line. We often get breaks at the end, but not always. We do often get those um, uh, these lines that 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 sort of roll over the second half, right? Tenuviel was dancing there to music of a pipe unseen. Again, we get those two lines in jammed, right? But then we don't in the next two parts to music of a pipe unseen and light of stars was in her hair and in her raiment glimmering, right? A more natural, not a huge pause, but a more natural pause, not a not a not an end mark punctuation pause, right? Um, but a very natural uh, uh, comma pause. Uh, in those two lines. So we can see uh, that. But uh, gosh, notice what happened there. Even that, right? Even that shape, the shape of the enjambment of the lines is symmetrical, right? Where we get the enjambment between the second two lines, right? The lines three and four of the first uh, uh, of the first quatrain and then lines one and two of the second quatrain with the pauses at top and bottom of the stanza. Even that has a shape, right? Even how the lines flow has a shape, which is kind of amazing. And then, of course, there's the rhyme scheme. Uh, so what do we notice about the 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 uh, the, the rhyme scheme? Um, it's, uh, um, it's a complicated rhyme scheme, right? This is not a simple rhyme scheme. How many total rhymes do we have per stanza? How many rhymes? Three. Yes. Three rhymes for every stanza. The A rhyme, the B rhyme, and the C rhyme, right? And yes, we do have Alia Eru, that exact same basic uh, 
uh, uh, pattern of the C rhyme is always uh, is 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 a big uh, constant, right? Um, line four, line eight. So the two quatrains within the eight line stanzas are tied together by the C rhyme, right? So you've got the first three lines and the fourth line. The first three lines and the fourth line. So the fourth lines of both of the quatrains end with the C rhyme, and it's more than just a rhyme, right? It's a multisyllabic rhyme, right? Shimmering, glimmering. Um, we have a three-syllable rhyme there. Um, and of course, uh, we'll see more pattern as we move forward. But okay, so we get that. How about the A and B rhymes? Notice once again what we see there, right? So we've got the three lines and the three lines. Green, fair, seen, there, unseen, was in her hair. Okay. So there, unseen, hair, green, fair, seen. I did it backwards, right? And what do you notice? Again, it's not repetitive. It's symmetrical. Again. Right? ABA at the top, BAB at the bottom. So that the A and B rhymes are balanced, but they're balanced between the two quatrains, which again reflect each other. Um, Again, like a mirror image, not... uh, They don't repeat, they reflect. Just like we noticed with the enjambment of those lines, right, uh, in that first stanza as well. Um, so the way that this is, um, the way that this is broken, so fourth knowledge, you could say it that way. You could say that there's, there's a continuous AB rhyme that's broken um, by the C rhyme, sort of interrupted by the C rhyme. And that's, that's a perfectly fair description. But I don't like it. And the reason I don't like it is that, again, I think it, to say that it's an interruption of a, of a, you know, to say that there's just like six rhyme, six lines of alternating A and B interrupted by a C rhyme is a perfectly accurate description of what's there, right? But what it misses is the overall shape, how you get that symmetry. It's very clear from the syntax from the sound of the lines, um, that is just just the rhythm of the line, the, the lines even without the rhyme. But the 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 rhythm added to the syntax, added to the rhyme scheme with the repeated C rhymes, makes it very clear uh, how this uh, 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 poem is sort of uh, broken up for us. Right, that we should be thinking of it in quatrains. It's in stanzas. It's in eight line stanzas. Right, and these stanzas hold together. The C rhymes hold them together. The A and B rhymes hold them together. Right. But um, they, uh, it's not just, it's not just uh, an eight line stanza. The eight lines are divided into the two quatrains and the two quatrains relate to each other in a particular way, right? And that is, again, not repetition, but mirroring. Um, so uh, that's um, uh, really, I mean, so, so it's, it's really cool to see how this all works. So notice that now the C rhyme is not only uh, important because it sort of kind of bookends the two quatrains there, right? Or, or brings them each to an end. But it's also, you know, I mentioned how it's a three-syllable rhyme, which is different from the others, right? Uh, green, fair, seen, there, unseen, hair. Those are all one syllable. Not only are they one syllable rhymes, most of them are one syllable words, right? Um, 
and then the the uh, the the very pronounced rhyme with shimmering and glimmering. Okay, um, so that's all pretty cool, right? That all works. Now, notice we haven't even started talking about the content of this stanza yet. We're just still looking at the rhyme scheme and the shape of it. But you can already see the intricacy of the shape of this poem, which is really fun. And now, when you take that the intricacy of that shape and you think about what the words actually mean right in the actual imagery being used then um you uh you get something more right you get you get a kind not only the content but almost a kind of a commentary on that comment on that content by the shape itself so uh, let me show you what i mean what, what i mean here um see you guys that keep wanting to jump ahead to the last stanza knock it off be patient. Focus on the first stanza first. We'll get there. We'll get there. Um, uh, yeah. And um, um, oh, by the way, the 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 I think the I think the C rhymes here are uh, stars in shadow shimmering. Yeah, those are. I think these are present participles, not um, uh, not uh, gerunds. Actually, uh, gerunds are nouns. Uh, these are not nouns. In her raiment glimmering, um, that's a it's a present participle. Um, so it is still a it's a it's a it's a verbal, right? I mean, it's a it's a it's a it's a part of a verb. But uh, anyway, okay. Look at the first quatrain. Now that the shape has told us right that we should be looking at these two quatrains separately, let's look at the first four lines. What are we getting in the in the first two non-enjammed lines? The leaves were long, the grass was green, the hemlock umbels tall and fair. So this list is about the growth, right, of this forest. Um, and we have the emphasis on the sort of the life and lushness of this forest, right? The length of the leaves, the greenness of the grass, uh, and both the height and the fairness of the hemlock umbels, um, which uh, is a phrase that I think uh, I, I, I could just like repeat to myself almost indefinitely, hemlock umbels. Uh, it is such a fun phrase uh, to say. Um, but anyway, uh, and in the glade, a light was seen of stars in shadow shimmering. So the uh, the enjammed lines there in the second the second two lines of the quatrain um, actually has something happening, right? So we have first the description of the forest and uh, emphasizing the lushness and the life of the forest, and then we get the light. And in the glade, a light was seen of stars in shadow shimmering. Now, what do you notice about the about the about the the light of stars? What do you notice about the verbs here? Uh verb, I should say, is there's only one. Yeah! For dollars exactly. It's in the passive voice, right? And in the glade a light was seen of stars in shadow shimmering. Now, what's the effect of that? What's the effect of that choice? By using the passive voice for that verb, what does uh, what does Tolkien establish here? Think about the effect of that now. The reason your English teacher always told you not to use the passive voice is that it conceals the doer of the action. Right? When you do it like that, you know, when you just say a light was seen, 
right? It's kind of like when a politician says mistakes were made, right? They say it that way because they want to conceal. They want to draw your attention away from the doer of the action, which is them, right? They don't want to say I made mistakes. So they say mistakes were made, right? So this is passive voice, right? Which draws attention away from the doer of the action and onto the object of the action itself. Rinroos, exactly. Yeah, Fourth Dauntless says it removes agency. Yes, Rinroos says it place, we place ourselves in the scene rather than hearing someone else seeing it. Yes, our, if, if the first stanza, notice Baron doesn't appear in the first stanza, right? Baron comes in in line one of stanza two. If there, in line three of the poem, it said, and in the glade, Baron saw a light. I mean, that would be like a terrible line. Uh, how clunky is that, right? But ignoring the sound of it and how it would work in the in the rhyme scheme, if you, if 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 you, if he came in that way, right? And in the glade, Baron saw a light of stars and shadow shimmering. Right? It's a story about Baron from the beginning. This is not. This poem does not establish a a, a poem about Baron from the beginning. Right? It is only secondarily about the dude who's actually seeing the light. Right, The first and most important thing about this poem, before we even ever get any reference to the, uh, uh, to the doer, you know, to the actual actor here, uh, is the light itself. Right? A light is seen there, and it is seen... We will learn that it is seen by Baron, but before it is seen by Baron, it is seen by us. Right? And that is pretty cool. Um, and notice, Fourth Dauntless, yeah, I mean, you could say that... I don't think the seer is the Unseen Piper. I mean, presumably the Unseen Piper is seeing, too. Again, by putting it in the passive voice, it makes it kind of inclusive, right? Um, I mean, Baron is seeing it, we're seeing it, the Unseen Piper is probably seeing it, too. But the music of a pipe unseen does that same kind of thing for me, right? Uh, that is to say, it kind of diffuses it. It's not a story about... Like, it's... Uh, we don't... The pipe... Does this mean when it says Tenuvio was dancing there to music of a pipe unseen, does that mean that you couldn't see a pipe? Like, an observer, an objective observer placed within this glade would not be able to, to see the pipe. I don't think that's necessary. There might be a piper sitting right over there, right? But if there's a piper sitting over there in a glade in which Tenuvio is dancing, let me tell you something. That pipe's going to be unseen because you're not going to be looking at it. You're going to be looking at Tenuvio, right? Um, so yeah, if you want to avoid attention, um, you know, then, then like, you know, be the backup band <laughs> for Luffy and Tenuvio because no one will notice you. Right. It'd be like the, it'd be like the, you know, the Silmarillion version of the witness protection program. So, um, anyway, no, I, that, but, but again, that I think is the point it's, it's this, this is all about sort of, you know, directing our attention and focusing, you know, we get the experience first. Right. And, Notice that experience that we get is not just an experience of seeing this. We, we're not allowed to see this objectively from the beginning, right? We see this and we are, by the description, we are enthralled from the beginning, right? Tenuviel was dancing there. Our first uh, active verb, right? In the entire thing. Um, we've got, we have... Uh, uh, linking verbs, right? Leaves were long, grass was green, hemlock, umbles, tall and fair. We've even skipped the linking verb, right? We've just uh, 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 sort of assumed you're going to carry on, you know, uh, it's understood, right? That it's uh, the hemlock, umbles were tall and fair. Um, 
in the Glade of Light was seen. So seen is now our first. It's an action verb, not a winking verb, but it's in the passive voice, right? Um, and so of stars in shadow, shimmering, present participle. Then we get our first regular, normal, active, indicative statement, right? Tenuviel was dancing there. That's the thing that's happening in this stanza, right? It's not about Baron. It's not even about us, right? We're invited to see it. This is about Tenuviel dancing, right? Tenuviel was dancing there to music of a pipe unseen. And light of stars was in her hair and in her raiment glimmering. Um, and that's even the star, the stars themselves are part of Luthien's backup band, right? Uh, are we looking at the stars? No, we're not looking at the stars, right? We're looking at Luthien. And in as much as we see the stars, we see the stars reflected because the, the, we, we are aware of the stars in that they are glimmering in her raiment and that their light is falling on her hair, right? It's her hair that we're seeing. Um, and it's, Reflecting the starlight draws our attention to the stars. Uh, similarly, with the starlight, right? We get starlight twice in this stanza, right? And in the glade, a light was seen. What light? A light of stars in shadow shimmering, right? So there's there are stars shimmering in the shadow. So wait a second. So are we seeing? Are we looking up? Are we seeing the sky? No, we're not seeing the sky. We're not looking up in the sky. And saying, oh, hey, look, I see some uh, stars glimmering in the shadows up there. No, no, no. It's the light of the stars that's glimmering in the shadow, right? The shadow under the trees. Um, uh, notice this line four is the first we learn that it's night, right? It's, we don't even know, right? The weaves were long, the grass was green, the hemlock umbles tall and fair, and in the glade a light was seen of noonday sun a-shimmering, right? Who knows, right? We don't know yet, right? Of stars in shadow shimmering. Okay, so we're seeing stars. It's nighttime, it's twilight, but it's not just setting the stage, right? The Even there, in the first half of the stanza, though we don't know why, it's in the glade. It's the starlight in the glade that we're focused on, not up the stars in the sky, right? Um... And then we learn why Tenuvio was dancing there. That's the center of the whole stanza, right? Uh, right there at the center mark, the first line of the second quatrain. Tenuvio was dancing there to music of a pipe unseen, and light of stars was in her hair. That's why we're seeing this. That's why the stars are shimmering in the shadows, in the glade, right? Which normally you'd be like, well, okay, starlight kind of faint anyway, right? Stars might twinkle up in the sky, but it's not exactly, like, why would you, would you look into a glade and be like, wow, I see the starlight shimmering in the shadows, right? You wouldn't say that. Um, well, unless you were looking at Luthien's hair as she was dancing uh, in the glade in the starlight, right? Um, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So, um... <laughs> Mongoli, yes, you're absolutely right. Tenuvio is is dancing with the stars. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Luthien did it first. Yeah, <laughs> no question. That's really kind of awful, uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Okay. Now, second stanza. Again, Tenuvio was dancing there, the whole center of that first stanza. Presumably there's a piper, who cares? Um, 
There Baron came from mountains cold, and lost he wandered under leaves, and where the elven river rolled he walked alone and sorrowing. He peered between the hemlock leaves, and saw in wonder flowers of gold upon her mantle and her sleeves, and her hair like shadow following. Okay, um, now let's think for a sec. Oh, hang on a second. There's something I forgot to say about the first stanza, and that is the C rhyme, right? That he- that three-syllable rhyme, shimmering, glimmering, right? Again, noted, we talked about how they structurally tie the first stanza together, both delineate the stanzas and also tie the stanzas together. Look at how this relates. Both of these are about the starlight, right? Stars and sh- of star- the light was seen of stars and shadow shimmering, and in her raiment, glimmering right so we get the shimmering and the glimmering of the starlight in both cases it's the starlight excuse me that's glimmering and shimmering right the first time it is in her hair and on her raiment but we just don't know that yet right and the second time now we do so when we see the light of stars glimmering the second time we now understand right what it is that we're seeing so it's almost like we're getting the experience of kind of seeing into this grove and not knowing there's something happening there and we don't know what it is right the stars and the light of stars and shadow shimmering and then it kind of resolves itself around that central figure of luthien and we get the repetition the the close rhyme and near repetition of the starlight glimmering right but now we can see why the light is doing that in this glade right and uh, what it is that is so um uh uh attractive <laughs> about this particular glade, right? And it's not just us. So here comes Baron. There Baron came from mountains cold, and lost he wandered under leaves, and where the elven river rolled he walked alone and sorrowing. Um, notice the repetitions here. Um, the Look at the A and B rhymes first. Cold, mountains cold, under leaves, elven river rolled, hemlock leaves, flowers of gold, and her sleeves. Now, uh, you might think uh, that a poet who rhymes a a word with the same word, like the repetition of leaves and leaves, you might look at that and say, that's a cop-out, right? That's a cop-out to, like, take as a rhyme just a mere repetition of the same word, right? No, uh, because repeated words are a thing in this poem. It's actually uh, part of the structure. We'll see this a lot more clearly when we read the older version of the poem. Kate could tell you about this. Um, uh, When we look at the older version of the poem, you'll see uh, repeated words were actually uh, part of the original structure. That element of the structure of this poem gets kind of toned down. So believe it or not, the older version of the poem is more detailed and intricate uh, in its structure than this, um, which is kind of amazing. Um, but but we can see a kind of a relic of that. And notice how this connects this stand, the, the repeated words, their leaves in particular, right? Um, uh, connect it back to the previous stanza. Now, leaves was not used as a rhyming word 
uh, in the previous stanza. But it's where we started, right? The leaves were long, the grass was green, the hemlock umbels tall and fair. So we started sort of from the forest, right? Again, notice how the poem kind of almost like gives us the experience of like, here we are, innocent mortals wandering through a forest, right? Oh, look at the leaves. Aren't they lovely? Oh, the grass is great here. Um, hey, hemlock umbels. Who doesn't like hemlock umbels? And then we look into a glade and we see the star, the light of stars and shadow shimmering and whammo, there's Tenuviel dancing, right? And all of a sudden, there we are, right? Uh, and uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, enchanted by the experience. Um, Bar- Notice how Baron sort of is following the same path, right? There, and the second stanza is sort of about, um, uh, is sort of about Baron's journey, Right there, Baron came from mountains cold and lost. He wandered under leaves, and where the elven river rolled, he walked alone and sorrowing. He peered between the hemlock leaves. So first, he's just wandering under the leaves, like the, which were presumably long, right? Uh, and then he comes under. He's uh, uh, is peering between the hemlock leaves, which were presumably arranged in umbels, right? Uh, so again, we can see how now this same kind of experience that we've been invited to have in the first stanza, we see Baron recapitulate it, right? Now we're sort of prepared uh, for the experience. We know it's going to happen, right? Uh, <laughs> to Baron, because it kind of just happened to us in the first stanza. We know it waits for Baron. And when he's peering between the hemlock leaves, we know where he is, right? And we know what's coming. Um, and uh, notice a couple things here um, about Baron's experience. Um, yeah, Fourth Dauntless says that uh, Baron's experience is kind of like Frodo's with Goldberry. He unexpectedly came upon an elf queen clad in living flowers. Yes, it is kind of like that, or rather it's like what Frodo's it's 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 the experience that Frodo's meaning of Goldberry is compared to, right? Um the, one of the things that I find really striking about this second stanza is the flowers of gold, right? And I find that so interesting because um, we do get the green grass in the first line, but apart from the that green grass, I don't want to say that the first stanza is in black and white, but it's dark, right? It's a starlit uh, thing. We don't have any light stronger than starlight. And it's all about... Um, uh, the light of stars shimmering in her hair and on her raiment, which invites a kind of a low, not blazing colors, right? Um, and then we get flowers of gold, not on the ground, upon her mantle and her sleeves, right? So we've got her raiment now. Her raiment is glimmering, but it's not just kind of glinting silvery in the starlight, right? It's we have this this uh, new striking and rich color, the flowers of gold upon her mantles and her sleeves and her hair like shadow following. Um, yes, uh, uh, Marianne, I agree. It is like Luthien, uh, her own sort of radiance is giving color to the scene. Right. It's uh, there's it's um, I, I've, I've almost um, I would almost be tempted like this experience it's it's sort of like 
I don't know. It's sort of like a version of that moment in in uh, in in the Wizard of Oz film, right? When the black and white suddenly resolves itself into color. Um, I would totally shoot Baron coming from the mountains cold in like a a, a sort of a near black and white uh, color panel, right? And then the flowers of gold, like suddenly when he's looking at her, you know, when he's looking at her and seeing her dancing, and again, presumably hearing somebody pipe, as if that matters. Um, uh, then the, the, you know, the, now like the flowers of gold would be like the most powerful things that, uh, um, that he sees, uh, upon her mantle and her sleeves and her hair like shadow following. And, uh, um, fourth thoughtless, your recollection of that line about the, uh, elf queen clad in living flowers. Notice it's not really clear about that flowers of gold upon her mantle and her sleeves. What does that mean? Does it mean she like her mantle and sleeves are embroidered with golden flowers? Are they, you know, is that is, is that what I mean? Is she clad in living flowers? Are there actually golden flowers growing on her mantle and her sleeve, or picked and placed? We we have no idea, right? Um. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um. Yes, and Matt, you're right. Um. Matt is noticing one trend. Uh, look at these first two stanzas. Look at how many of those lines start with the word and. Right? Three of them out of the eight in the first stanza. Four of them out of the eight in the second stanza. Right? Um, that is definitely part of the the rhythm. Part of the uh, um, uh, the sort of shape syntactically of the um uh of the of this structure right uh of this poem their baron came from mountains cold and lost he wandered under leaves and where the elven river rolled he walked alone and sorrowing period he peered between the hemlock leaves and saw in wonder flowers of gold upon her mantle and her sleeves and in her hair and her hair like uh shadow following um Yes, yes, it's uh, it does enable Matt, as you suggest, the sort of the images to 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 build upon one another. Um, I get we see once again each quatrain is its own sentence, right? And each sentence is contained of these multiple parts, um, which are which lead to one another, sort of pile on each other. Um, the first quatrain in that second stanza is about his journey. Right. And notice where his journey leads to. Look at the, the end of that first quatrain in the second stanza. Their baron came from mountain cold and lost. He wandered under leaves and where the elven river rolled. He walked alone and sorrowing. Right. The end of Baron's journey is, so far as he knows, loneliness and sorrow. He has come from the cold mountains and we don't know anything about those cold mountains in this poem, but it doesn't sound like much fun. Um, and even when he's wandering under the leaves, that sounds like an upgrade, right? I've gone from cold mountains and I'm now wandering under leaves, um, which we're, we're, we know are long and probably have green grass under them and everything. Um, and the hemlock umbles are great around here. So again, this sounds like he's trending up, right? Baron is, um, but he's not, actually, right? He's following the Elven River. The Elven River is rolling along, 
But even though he's fall, he's he's walking by the Elven River, and he's wandering under the leaves, he's walking alone and sorrowing. Um, he peered between the hemlock leaves and saw in wonder flowers of gold upon her mantle and her sleeves and her hair-like shadow following. Notice that we don't get her even, right? What we get of her in that second... we She sort of appeared in the middle of the glade in stanza one for us, right? Tenuviel was dancing there. We get in line five. Um, we don't get that with Baron. You know, he walked alone and sorrowing. Um, you know, uh, he, like, he, 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 he peered and saw Tenuviel, right? We don't get that. Um, all we get are these images. He looks in and what does he see? He sees flowers of gold all of a sudden, right? In the darkness, he can see, but have you ever seen a golden flower by starlight, right? It doesn't look really gold. I mean, the gold isn't really going to pop in starlight, uh, I don't think. Um, yes, Mad Violinist, I think that's a great way to, to look at it. She's too much for him to take in all at once, right? He gets these fragmentary things of the gold of the flowers on her mantle and her sleeves, the shadow of her hair following behind her, right? He can't, he'll, it's like his eyes can't keep up with her, right? Can't take her in uh, all at once. Um, and Matt, yeah, we do get this sense of getting initial glimpses uh, through the leaves uh, there as well. He has no idea what it is that he's seeing. He's not looking for anything, right? He is wandering alone and sorrowing. Right? He walked alone and sorrowing. And notice now in the first stanza, those sea rhymes, right? Those sea rhymes were tying shimmering and glimmering. When we talked about the repetition there and the effect of that repetition after we get before and after we get to Nuviel, right? Notice the second uh, stanza works very differently, right? Sorrowing, following. First we have him alone, right? And that rhyme, I find that rhyme a deeply moving rhyme to rhyme sorrowing. Right, being accompanied as it is in the line by the concept of loneliness, right? To rhyme sorrowing with following, right? Her hair is following her. Uh, we know that he is going to be following her, not quite as closely as her hair, right? Um, but, you know, the, 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 the word following suggests a togetherness, right? Two things moving together, in this case, her and her hair, right? Um, but, um, uh, but anyway, um, he's, it's, it's a major change for him, right? Who was not only alone, but also sorrowing. And now in that state to find himself suddenly, uh, looking in and not even understanding yet what he's seeing, um, uh, is, uh, is very, very moving. I think, Hey, look, stanza three. Enchantment healed his weary feet that over hills were doomed to roam, and forth he hastened, strong and fleet, and grasped at moonbeams glistening. Through through woven woods in elven home she lightly fled on dancing feet, and left him lonely still to roam in silent forest, listening. Uh, Okay, so, you know, another thing that we haven't talked about, right... 
uh, so far, uh, which is another sound thing for these, is the tendency to alliteration in these lines as well. Remember back in the first line, the leaves were long, the grass was green. Um, it's not a constant alliteration through, but alliteration is definitely part of the music uh, that is often used uh, in, uh, in this poem. And um, we can hear it being used uh, to good effect in this stanza, I think, especially, right? Um, uh, forth he hastens, strong and fleet. The fourth and fleet there, I think, are important. The grasped and glistening. Through woven woods in elven home, she lightly fled on dancing feet and left him lonely. Oh, left and lonely. That's terrible, right? The, the alliterative connection between the words left and lonely is very sad, isn't it? Uh, still to roam in the silent forest, listening. Um, notice what we see in the uh, in the rhyme scheme again. Once more, even more strongly, we see Tolkien using repetition in those A and B rhymes. Right, weary feet, doomed to roam, strong and fleet. Right, those six words tell a, par- a big part of the story of the stanza, don't they? Weary feet, doomed to roam strong and fleet, right? He is, he is healed, right? He is strengthened. He is invigorated. He's already been himself transformed by this experience of just catching a glimpse of her through the leaves, right? Um, but then notice, uh, uh, elven home, dancing feet, still to roam, right? Um, so we get, first, let's look at the A rhymes, right? Um, Feet, fleet, feet, right? Uh, the fleetness of feet is a thing here, but look how this goes. First, we have his weary feet, right? And then his weary feet become strong and fleet, right? As he is healed and inspired. And then we have her feet, right? So his feet, which may once have been weary, may be strong and fleet now, right? But her dancing feet, forget about it, right? Um, When we shift from the focus on him in the first half of the stanza to her in the second half of the in the the second quatrain. Right. And you can see how the focus works there. The first four lines is about him and the second four lines is all about her. Right. About uh, it's you know, he's involved, but it's what she's doing. Right. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So um, uh, she flees lightly on dancing feet. And notice how even uh, uh, the the alliteration in that line, she lightly fled on dancing feet. Um, the fled on feet seems to sort of go back to like his feet may be fleet, but she flees on her feet. Right? <laughs> Again, all the, the repetition of these sounds really ties uh, the two quatrains together. Um, you know, his weary feet may be strong and fleet now, but he don't know from fleet. Right? Uh, her dancing feet uh, and when she flees you know, uh, uh, forget about it. Um, and, but now look at the B rhymes, Rome, Elven home, Rome, right? So you've got three B rhymes. The first and the last rhyme are the same word, but oh man, look at the difference between the two of them, right? Enchantment healed his weary feet that over hills were doomed to Rome. Um, now the, Verb in that second line is past tense, right? That over hills were doomed to roam. 
Um, but with the healing of his weary feet, and of course, I don't know about you, but I can't even hear the phrase weary feet without thinking of Frodo, right? As we've already been looking at, but, um, uh, you know, there's gotta be a little bit of relevance there, but let's not worry about that even yet. Okay. So, um, his weary feet have been healed now. So it doesn't say that over Hills had been doomed to Rome, right? We're not going to make that a perfect tense. His roaming, his dooming, right? His, his, his doom to Rome. We're not told explicitly that that doom is over now, but there's almost a feeling of that, right? Like he is anticipating that his weary feet have been doomed to Rome, right? But Hey, He's not roaming anymore, and he's certainly not a roaming. Al- he's not walking alone and sorrowless anymore, right? He's not. A, he's not just walking, right? He's hastening, right? And he's not alone, very emphatically. Uh, and he's no longer sorrowing, right? Uh, now he is eager and desiring. Um, so that first use of the word "roam" sort of suggests that the roaming. Uh, at least opens the door to the possibility that his roaming days are in the past. Uh, he's not just roaming anymore. He's hastening, right? He's got a goal. He's got a destination. And he's not sorry. And because of that, he's not sorrowing anymore either. And then all oh, the crushing repetition of Rome at the end, right? She lightly fled on dancing feet and left him lonely, still to roam in the silent forest listening. Right. So, oh, man, he's back to roaming. Right. Straight back to the roaming and not only roaming, but lonely. Right. And now notice the near internal rhyme there. It's not exactly a rhyme, but we get it. We get again so much um, Tolkien loves to sort of tie the lines together. You'll hear so many echoes, whether it's alliterative echoes, whether, you know, so you, whether it whether the the echo is in the initial consonant, whether the echo is in the 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 uh, the vowel sound, right? Lonely Rome uh, is uh, is again like that's you know left him lonely still to roam. Those three words left lonely Rome, right? Left and lonely are tied together by those first. Sounds lonely and Rome are tied together by their uh, by their vowels, and the three of them together are just crushing. Left lonely Rome. Oh man, that's so hard, right? The poor lonely guy who just has been transformed briefly, right? But back there's a so the the, the again the repetition. This is not a cop out, right? The roaming, the second roaming is in a new place, uh, and it's an even sadder place in a way than the one before. Um, and now we should look at the sea rhymes, right? And grasped at moonbeams glistening in the silent forest listening. Both of them are actions that he performed, right? Well, not actions. Neither of them are verbs. None of these are verbs, right? The C rhymes are always present participles, so they're not verbs technically, um, but they're talking about what he's doing, right? Grasping is an active verb, right? Grasped at moonbeams glistening, right? So notice once again, uh, we have the starlight 
which was sort of associated with her in that first stanza, right? We saw the starlight glimmering and we didn't know why, right? And then it turned out, then we noticed that Tenuvia was dancing there. Now we have the moonbeams. He's, he's grasping at moonbeams. And Kate, exactly as you said, um, he may be, you can be as strong and fleet as you like, right? Uh, but you can't catch moonbeams by strength or by speed, right? Uh, no matter how strong, no matter how fleet, no matter how determined you are, you can grasp at moonbeams all night long and you're not going to catch them, right? There's a, there's a kind of uh, futility, and not just futility, there's a kind of presumption about that. Right, almost a sort of madness about that. Like, what are you doing? Who are you that you think you can catch a moonbeam? Right? Um, you must be a very great fool if you think you can grasp at moonbeams and catch them. Right? Um, and Valoria, yeah, it's hard to avoid the connection of insanity and with moons. Right? With the shift from starlight to moonlight here. Um, exactly, Belongsman, you could be under an enchantment, which would also explain it, right, why you would act in this way. Um, but again, it's, presumably it is the moonbeams. I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that the moonbeams were not actually the target of his grasping, right? I, I don't think he was, he was actually trying to catch the moonbeams. But the, you know, the speaker of the poem, by telling us this, right, is... Um, is Essentially suggesting trying to grasp uh, Luthien herself is uh, uh, is just as um, uh, is just as futile, right, as trying to grasp the moonbeams themselves. Howsoever they glisten, right, and again the the way that glistening should remind us of glimmering in the first stanza, right, uh, the light of stars in her hair and in her raiment. Um, Make sure that we, <laughs> we 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 are in no doubts, right, about uh, what exactly he is uh, grasping for. And uh, uh, Bruce, you are so right. Tolkien loves GL words. GL, I think you gotta say right. GL is one of his favorite consonantal sounds. I mean, I think that's demonstrable. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, uh, yes, yes. Glimmering, glistening, gleaming, glittering, gloom, gloaming, I would add. Gloaming is a favorite word. Um, yeah, yeah. No, he loves that sound. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> Tarloniel says somewhere a piper is pointing and laughing. <laughs> yeah, probably so. Probably so. But again, notice. Notice who doesn't appear. <laughs> The Piper, right? Presumably there's a Piper somewhere, but whatever. Okay. Um, but hang on. I was talking about those Rome, that Rome repetition, right? The B rhymes, but I skipped the middle one, right? Because we don't just get Rome. We do get Rome twice, right? But we get something else in the middle, right? We get a third uh, line. Well, second B rhyme, but because uh, we just have the one. Um, but that, that, that the line that's in the, what separates... Rome, number one, from Rome, number two, right? Sad, but hopefully in the past, Rome, number one. Uh, even sadder because now in the present and future, Rome, number two. And what, what is in between them? Elvenholm, right? Through woven woods in Elvenholm, she lightly fled on dancing feet, right? This is, you're in fairy, dude. Right. This is where this is her home. Uh, the woods, the, the 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 woven woods. Right. 
the alliteration, and especially when when alliteration is in two consecutive words like that. Has that even happened? Have we gotten that in this poem yet? Two consecutive alliterative words. I don't think we have. I don't remember one. Shadow shimmering. Okay, we did get shadow shimmering. Uh... Grass was green. They're only separated by a little bit. But anyway, Woven Woods is a really, because they're consecutive, it really makes it pop, right? That alliterative sound. Um, and uh, um, anyway, um, so, oh, Fourth Dauntless, great observation. Uh, the repetition of Rome, uh, he says, really emphasizes the word still in that penultimate line, right? And left him lonely still to Rome. He's still lonely. He's still roaming, right? Back to the old roaming drawing board for Baron, right? Except now worse than before, because before he was just lonely and homeless and wandering, right? Uh, now he almost caught something, you know, he caught a glimpse of something and, and has lost it. Um, uh, but anyway, back to the woven woods. Woven woods, right? So again, that, that's a phrase that really pops because of the alliteration. And woven, apart from the alliteration, is a really interesting adjective to use to apply to woods, right? Woven? Woven in what sense? Who's weaving them together? The idea that the woods are in some way artificial, that's not the right word because it has a negative connotation, but that there's craft involved there, right? Um, the woven woods, through woven woods in elven home, she lightly fled on dancing feet, right? Um, you get this sense of, like, the woods closing in behind her, right? Because they're woven together. These, this is a, these are elvish woods we're talking about here. And she's an elf, clearly. Uh, and she is uh, uh, lightly fleeing into the woven woods in elven home. And you get a pretty clear sense that, again, howsoever strong and fleet, uh, his formerly weary feet might have become, he is going to have less luck in trying to pursue her through those woven woods uh, than before. But Kate, you are also right uh, that we get um, uh, the, it, it, it looks like a spell, right? You also, a spell is another thing that you weave, right? Um, so yes, it's not only sort of cra uh, suggesting craft, but suggesting enchantment uh, as well. Absolutely. Um, Mad Violinist, great point as well. Um, Mad Violinist says she lightly fled on dancing feet. Um, we are not invited here. I totally agree with the Mad Violinist that we are not invited here to imagine Luthien seeing Baron uh, looking, not only looking at her through the bushes, right, but leaping out um, strong and fleet, right, and trying to grasp at things, right, which would be off-putting, potentially, right, um, I don't, th we're not invited to see Luthien as, like, shrieking and screaming and running away in terror, right, lightly, she's fleeing lightly, which, of course, talks about how swiftly, uh, you know, she's running and how her feet barely hit the ground, but she's still dancing, right, lightly fled on dancing feet, um, it's almost like she barely even interrupts her dance, Right, she just kind of segues into the fleeing part of her dance, but it's all part of the dance, right? It's not. Um, um, I, I agree. I do not think that Luthien is terrified here. Um, yeah, um, yeah. Tarlonio says he can't catch her unless she wants him to catch her. Um, she knows it, and maybe he knows it too. Maybe not sure about that second one, but I do think about that former one. Um, if 
because see, this is, you know, you can do an experiment with this, right? Uh, if you're a mortal walking in the deep forest and you see an elf maiden or maybe many elf maidens dancing uh, in a glade, what's going to happen? Step out into the ring. What's going to happen? Um, what would you put your odds at catching an elf maid in these circumstances, right? Mm, not good. This is a kind of thing that happens all the time in fairy tales, right? Um, the standard thing, at the like, the very least, th- it's going to vanish as soon as you like. As soon as you step out into the fairy ring, it's going to vanish away, right? That's the best case scenario, right? The worst case scenario is that something bad might happen to you, right? Yeah, Tomas, it often is a one-way ticket. Right. You could find any number of unpleasant things have happened to you because you're transgressing. Right. When you do this. Uh, So. um, uh, And note, we have experimental proof of this within Tolkien's literature. Right. Exactly. As several of you are remembering. Um, uh, Yeah, Matt, exactly. You, You could end up dancing with them. Right. That could happen. And you could go home and find that you've been dancing for a hundred years, right? That also often is a kind of thing that happens. Um, But exactly as Kate says, and as Bruce is saying, we know what happens when you enter, uh, when you break into a fairy ring, because we saw what happened when, when Bilbo did it and Thorin did it in the Hobbit, right? Um, They vanish and uh, maybe you're cast into a magical slumber Maybe you're kidnapped and taken away and imprisoned in an elf mound, like Thorin was the third time, right? Um, you could end up with ass's ears, mad violinist. I absolutely agree. You know the 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 um the, you know there's even remember an element of this same concept with uh, with Acteon uh, and his hounds in Greek mythology, right? That that story, you know, seeing Diana bathing and and being or Artemis perhaps if I'm doing the Greek version um, and then being turned into a stag and having his own hounds hunt him down. There's, there's an element of the same myth there as well. Right. So um, anyway, your odds aren't good. And in general, so again, the elf maiden in question, uh, not a whole lot to worry about, right? She's not the innocent victim here, (laughs) right? She's, she's kind of in control of the situation and she seems, uh, she seems to know that. Okay. Um, so, um, ah, but wait, I didn't finish the, uh, C rhyme. So the first C rhyme grasped at moonbeams glistening. What's the the second C rhyme? Where does this? Because of course we have the first stanza has his freedom from doom, right, and his the his healing of weariness and his strength and fleetness and and the end of the roaming, right, and then we have left him lonely still to roam in the second half of the stanza, right. So again, we can see the symmetry between the two quatrains within the stanza in the silent forest listening. Oh man, silent and listening are sad, right? That's a sad combination right there. Um, Not only because apparently the piper has gone away, as if anybody noticed, but the forest is silent now, right? No more music, 
no more dancing, and he's left there listening. So he was grasping actively at the moon memes, and now he's left, and he has to roam, and all he can do is sit there and perform. He's still performing an action, right? But he's performing it passively. Again, now it's just the present participle describing his state. He's in a listening state, right? He's just listening. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, exactly, Kate. He is roaming. She's in Elven home, right? That's, yeah, yeah. Um, he's roaming before and after her Elven home is right in the middle. Again, that B rhyme structure is really awesome. We go from the grasping, like you try to grasp at the moon memes, you're likely to be left in the end in the silent forest listening. So this is a sad story so far, but let's keep in mind that this is um, uh, this is a, a normal pattern, right? Um, that is, it's, it's a sad story, but it's not like especially tragic, you know? Um, it's par for the course is what you expect, right? Mortal dude sees Elvish Maiden dancing. How did you expect that story to turn out, right? This is how you expect it to turn out. And he's left in the silent forest listening, right? Sad, but not unexpected, right? Um, stanza four. He heard there oft the flying sound of feet as light as linden leaves or music welling underground in hidden hollows quavering. Now withered lay the hemlock sheaves, and one by one with sighing sound, whispering fell the beechen leaves in the wintry woodland wavering. Now the season echoes Baron's loneliness in silence, right? Now we have the green of the green grass and the long leaves, right, and the hemlock humbles. Now things are changing. Notice it's a long time he's there in the woods, lingering in the woods. Um, and, uh, what he, and, 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 and this winter is, uh, uh, is falling around him, right? <laughs> Mad Violinist calls this stanza the pursuing montage, right? Which it, which it kind of is. Yeah. Um, uh, notice again, the same shape of the A and B rhymes. Now we notice this is happening um, like it did in the previous stanza. We've established now the definite pattern of the first and, and third rhymes of both the A and B rhymes are the same word, right? Feet, feet, roam, roam in the, in the third stanza. Sound, sound, leaves, leaves again, right? Uh, so let's look at what's going on in those A and B rhymes. And of course, once again, we see exactly the same syntactic structure, two quatrains, uh, two sentences, right? Um, again, notice how in larger picture ways, as well as in smaller ways, like with the rhythm of the lines, this poem is very regular, right? In establishing its, its, uh, its shape. Okay. So, um, what do we, what do we get? What do we see, um, in, this second stanza here. Um, first quatrain. He heard there oft the flying sound of feet as light as linden leaves, or music welling underground in hidden hollows quavering. Um, okay. We have him hearing things, but distantly. He's getting no... Uh, is it? Uh, yeah, Kate was saying lots of sound here. He's been looking so far, right? He was looking and then he was grasping. Now he's only listening, right? And he's listening 
distantly. There's the flying sound of feet as light as linden leaves. He can hear what sounds like dancing feet, but he can't come anywhere. He's getting no glimpses of anything anymore, right? It's just very distant, just as the music is distant. The music wells up, seems to be welling up from underground, as if it were quavering within a hidden hollow. And again, we have that hidden hollow like woven woods, right? That alliterative phrase, which really, uh, which again really pops because they're adjacent there. Um, It's not just that they are in hollows. The hollows are hidden. He can't find them. He has no idea where the music is coming from. He can faintly hear music. He thinks he can hear dancing feet. He can't come any closer than that. Um, um, Notice the triple alliteration that we get in the light as uh, feet as light as linden leaves um, in that uh, in that second line. Um, But again, notice the implication there. Notice how now what is what is the falling of her feet being associated with in the first, well, second stanza, right? Um, When he looks in, he sees the flowers. Right. So we're not told that those flowers like bloomed when he looked in, but it's it's our experience. And that seems to be his experience as he looks in and he's like, whoa, golden flowers. Right. Um, Here we get um, the linden leaves. Right. Her feet are as light as linden leaves, as light as linden leaves doing what? What are the linden leaves doing that sound like her feet? Exactly, Mad Violinist. Falling, because it's autumn, right? It's autumn turning to winter. So as the beautiful summer of, you know, his enchantment, of the delight that he stumbled upon here in the woods, fades into autumn and into uh, into winter, right? The falling of the leaves in the wood, which again, those leaves may have been long, but the sound that they make when they hit the, you know, the, so the sound of her dancing feet, it's not like summer anymore. It's like autumn, right? Um, because of how fleet they are, right? Because of how far away. Um, uh, it's like the falling of the leaves, the passing from summer to autumn, the sort of despair of his uh, uh, of his heart. And yes, as Kate points out, linden leaves turn golden in the fall, right? So yes, we should be imagining golden leaves falling and hitting the ground like the golden flowers uh, on her mantle and her sleeves. Um, And uh, the word quavering is an interesting one. Um, It's of course modifying music, right? Um, The music is, is, is both welling underground and it's quavering in hidden hollows, right? Those are the two things that the music is, is, is being described as doing. Um, uh, the music so like the source of the music like the welling sort of suggests it's sort of it's coming from its source but its source is, is hit. you don't know where the well is you just see the stream right um, he can hear the music but he can't find the wellspring right he can't find the source um, and it's quavering in hidden hollows again it's so faint it's like it's it's like it's coming in and out like it's breaking up right um second quatrain of that stanza now withered like now we've gone from autumn into winter in the second quatrain right 
Now withered lay the hemlock sheaves, and one by one, with sighing sound, whispering fell the beechen leaves in the wintry woodland wavering. Um, okay, so uh, the beechen leaves are now also falling, one by one, with sighing sound, whispering fell the beechen leaves in the wintry woodland wavering. Um, the linden leaves falling to the ground, the golden linden leaves, uh, are like the sound of her distant dancing footfalls, right? So distant that he can barely hear it. Now the sound of the beechen leaves that are falling are like his own sighs, right? His own loneliness, his own sadness, his own weariness, uh, as he is still doomed to roam, doomed to loneliness, right? As he is still waiting and seeking. But remember that last C rhyme in the third stanza, listening, right, is what he's doing. He's passive. He's not active. He's not hunting. He's not pursuing. He's not scouring. He's just listening, right? Um, And he hears stuff, but we don't see him doing anything. Notice the complete lack of action, by Baron. All we get is landscape description here, but the landscape, just as the leaves falling are like her feet that he hears, I think the beechen leaves falling, as they say, are like his own sighing, right? So the description of the change from summer into fall and from fall into winter not only conveys the passing of time, but also uh, gives us an insight into his own experience, right? This is the winter of Baron's discontent. Um, yeah, Lincoln, I absolutely agree. Lincoln says, for an elf poem, we're getting an awful lot of Baron the Human's perspective. Absolutely. Um, this is not an elf poem. Absolutely not. That is, it, that's not the frame, right? This is absolutely not told from the elvish point of view. Um, now, this may be an elf poem, which is imagining the human point of view, if we like, um, but that's an important point, I think. Um, this is, um, remember what... Um, uh, Tolkien said in On Fairy Stories, right? Fairy stories are not stories about fairies. They're stories about mortals when mortals wander into fairy, right? That's what this poem is, too. It's an elf poem in the same sense that a fairy story is a fairy story, right? Um, who wrote it, says Brick Tales. Who knows? Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that. We'll, we'll, we'll think about that a little bit more. But let's not get distracted. Let's focus on this. Yeah, exactly. Uh, in story, I understand. Um, but l- l- let's keep going. Let's not uh, let's not get distracted with frame quite yet. Okay. Um, oh yeah, the hemlock sheaves. Oh man, like the 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 hemlock umbels aren't tall and fair anymore. They're now withered. Right. The very leaves that he looked through, uh, the very trees that he peered through originally are now withered. Uh, the sighing Ooh. sound. Notice all the alliteration here. Um, uh, all the alliteration that we get in uh, in this stanza, right? Starting with, as I said, that three uh, that three word alliteration in line two, right? Light is linden leaves, um, hidden hollows, quavering, um, sighing sound, uh, whispering fell the beech in leaves in the wintry woodland wavering. Got four W's in those last two lines, right? In the wintry woodland wavering, in the wintry woodland wavering. Um, that's really, uh, really very striking. Um, and there, I think that we can get a little bit of the, uh, 
it's almost, I don't want to go too far with this, but it's almost onomatopoetic. Um, he has just said with sighing sound, right? Whispering fell the beechen leaves in the wintry woodland wavering. The very soft wah that you get at the beginning of those words, wintry woodland wavering, is like that sighing sound, like the whispering of the beechen leaves as they're falling to the ground. Um, anyway, okay. But structure, let's go back to, so we looked at each one of the, the quatrains individually, but again, the structure of the rhyme scheme won't let us just do that, right? We need to think as we have before, how are these quatrains connected? The autumn quatrain and the winter quatrain here within this stanza. Look at the A and B rhymes. Sound, sound, again. So let's look at those two sound concepts. The flying sound of feet as light as linden leaves, we get. So the flying, the sound in the, the first sound is her feet, right? Her dancing, we get again. The second, the last sound that we get is the sighing sound of the beechen leaves as they're falling. So we have first the sound of her dancing, then the sound of, I think by implication, Baron's sighs, right? Her dancing, but distant and fading, right? Fading away from him, um, receding like life, and uh, joy and ease and beauty are receding in the autumn into the winter, right? And then the sighing sound, which is like the natural consequence of the flying of the sound uh, in, uh, it, at the beginning. And what's in the middle? Underground, right? And notice how that kind of reminds me of Rome, Rome, and Elven home in the middle. And here we get the sound of her dancing, the sound of his sighing, and underground in the middle, like Elven home, right? That place where she is, that thing. He can't get there. It's not so, she's not even just like, it's not like if he scours the terrain with, you know, uh, sufficient vigor and efficiency, he'll fi track her down, right? If he could only just read the signs well enough, he'd be able to track her to her lair. That's not how this works, right? It's like she's underground. She's in a different place altogether. He can't get there. He, you can't just, you can't just go to fairy. Right. And he's not going to be able to do that. Um, and um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, cool. Uh, uh, Matt says that um, uh, Robert Frost uh, is going to use a very similar set of words in stopping by woods on a snowy evening to capture the sound of snowfall, the repeated W's uh, there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay, so again, so we can see how the sound sound underground works. Let's look at the others. Leaves, leaves, and hemlock sheaves, right? The first leaves are the linden leaves to which her feet are compared, right? So like her dancing feet being like linden leaves, which is both nice, but also sad because it's autumn. They're falling. She's receding, right? And then we have the beechen leaves, uh, which are falling. So again, notice the echo, the, the, the echo here, the sound and leaves and sound and leaves, right? Uh, both of them. So in one sense, those work like a pair, right? Her, her dancing, his sighing uh, there at the end, the wind and leaves to the beech and leaves. But then what color are beech leaves? I, I should know this, but I just totally don't. What color do beech leaves turn in the autumn? I don't even know. Somebody... Somebody illuminate me about beechen leaves. Um, but anyway, um, I keep like thinking of birch leaves, which is just not the same. Um, uh, 
Okay, so, but anyway, in the middle, we get the hemlock sheaves, right? Okay, so we got like reddish orangish. Okay, that's what that's what uh, uh, what, what what beech leaves go to. Okay, okay, so not the same color. That's good. That's what I would expect that they'd not be the same color. Um, okay. Um, all right. Uh, what was I doing? Oh yeah, hemlock sheaves. Okay, so in the middle between the linden leaves and the beechen leaves are the hemlock sheaves, right? So you notice you've got all three of those rhymes are on vegetation, right? From the linden to the beech and with the hemlock in the middle. But of course the hemlock, the withering of the hemlock sheaves brings us back to the to the very beginning even more sharply, right? Um, so again, you've got her dancing, going away, his sighing, what he's left with, and in the middle is the withering of the land, right? Uh, the coming of winter. And all of that lush green imagery from the first two lines of the poem uh, now fading and withering uh, and moving towards the whispering and wintry woodland wavering that we're going to get. Okay, so now, again, let me point out, to be perfectly fair, if the poem ended here, no one would have a cause to complain. Even Baron, if he were being honest with himself, would not have a cause to complain, right? Like, uh, and he lived sadly ever after <laughs> would be a perfectly normal ending, right? Uh, to a st- I mean, this is, the, again, you'd have to say... In the larger scope of like fairy tale tradition, that if all that he ends up with is sighing because he failed to grasp the moonbeam, you know, he got off easy, right? He was enchanted. It's still lingering with him, obviously. You know, he has a lingering sadness. Um, but, uh, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, he, he has no cause. <laughs> for complaint, right? This is how it normally ends. This is how it should end, in a sense, right? But this, of course, is not the last stanza in the poem. Wait a second. What is it? Let's count again. We were, this is stanza four, right? Let's peek ahead. Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Okay, so what it is, is the end of the first half of the poem. Right. Um, the next stanza after this, after in the wintry woodland wavering, is going to be the central stanza of the whole poem. And we should probably start thinking about that. Right. Because having seen in small ways within each stanza, right, how intricately shaped each stanza is, we should probably think about panning out because I'm willing to bet there's going to be some structure in the larger poem as a whole with different stanzas corresponding to each other in different ways, right? And since symmetry has been the primary mode so far, that's, you know, what I think uh, we should be first, uh, should first occur to us to look for, right? Uh, So the next stanza being stanza number five, potentially interesting right so let's uh let's uh with that in mind move on here 
He sought her ever, wandering far where leaves of years were thickly strewn, by light of moon and ray of star in frosty heavens shivering. Her mantle glinted in the moon, as on a hilltop high and far she danced, and at her feet was strewn a mist of silver quivering. Okay. Um... You notice something when I read that stanza? That sounds different. There's a difference in this stanza, which I'm just looking back. We haven't had that. That hasn't happened. That's never been a thing. Ever. Nope. First instance. And the instance, what I'm talking about, is that pause. The rhythm broke. We've not broken the rhythm ever in this stanza. Right, We've an almost perfect iambic tetrameter for four solid stanzas. Four and a half, four and three quarters solid stanzas. You notice where it breaks? She danced. Right? He sought her ever, wandering far. Now that little pause in the middle is like the pause at the beginning of the first stanza. Right? Um, the leaves were long, the grass was green. But that's not... Although there's a little pause in the middle of the line, it doesn't break the rhythm. Right? The leaves were long, the grass was green. He sought her ever, wandering far, where leaves of years were thickly strewn, by light of moon and ray of star in frosty heavens shivering. Her mantle glinted in the moon. I almost just said glinted in the gloom accidentally. Um, Her mantle glinted in the moon, as on a hilltop high and far she danced, and at her feet was strewn a mist of silver quivering. Bam! Notice that? That line, that second-to-last line in the stanza, slams on the brakes after two syllables. She danced, and at her feet was strewn a mist of silver quivering. Now, on the one hand, it's not an irregular line, right? I mean, she danced, and at her feet was strewn. It's still a perfect uh, iambic tetrameter line, right? But, But the pause, the break, after two syllables, right? And, and not just a, not just a, he sought her ever wandering far, right? Not just a little pause, right? It's a, it's a break. Um, syntactically, it's like breaks we've had before, but they've always been at the ends of lines. Um, notice the end, right? Just like Matt was pointing out in the first two stanzas, right? Um, as on a hilltop high and far, she danced and at her feet was strewn a mist of silver quivering. Again, syntactically, that's just like what we've been seeing, but we've never had it lined up like that before, right? Um, so, um, yeah, oh, by the way, sorry, I'm missing awesome stuff about beech leaves that you guys were telling me. Let me not miss this. Um, uh, uh, several people are talking about, uh, 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 raven, a raven, uh, was talking about how beech, uh, leaves, um, stay on the trees over the winter and turn shriveled and brown. Uh, you know, that they stay on the trees much longer, they turn brown before they do eventually fall off often when they're weighted down with snow, right? Um, so that idea of the beechen leaves, which are still clinging to the tree, even though they're dead and withered and brown, and then eventually fall off with a sigh at long after the leaves of the other trees have all fallen. Yeah, that might be relevant to Baron's situation. I can totally see that. Um, but uh, yeah, Mad Violinist, I absolutely agree. Um, I think the reason for the pause, what the pause creates 
is that sense of, you know, sort of perking up, right? Uh, as on a hilltop high and far, she danced. Whoa, there she is, right? <laughs> we stop this alliterative, we, you know, we stop this rhythm to bring you a newsflash. She's dancing, everybody, right? Um, because that's, of course, what we get here. He sought her ever. Now, notice again, in the last stanza, which, you know, the, the autumn and winter stanza, it was all about Baron, but it wasn't about Baron at all, right? It never mentioned him. It didn't talk about anything that he did. Um, now we get him again, right? And we get him in a, using active verbs. We, ha- we have him not just sitting, not just listening. Now he's seeking, right? He sought her ever, wandering far. Notice, though. Notice that. Oh, so cool. He's wandering again, just like he wandered at the beginning, right? Wasn't wander his verb? Yes, it was. And lost, he wandered under under leaves. Apart from came, which is fairly neutral, wandered was his verb, right? And now he's wandering again, but he's not just wandering, right? He was roaming, and now he's roaming again. But the new roaming, not exactly the same as the old. He might be still roaming, but it's not exactly the same, right? Um, he's wandering again, but he's not just wandering lonely. He's seeking, right? He sought her ever wandering far where leaves of years were thickly strewn by light of moon and ray of star in frosty heavens shivering first quatrain all about the seeking all about his wandering right it is highly directed wandering it is unclear how long he's wandering for right the implication though it is not stated is that he might well be wandering for years, right? Where leaves of years are thickly strewn. Remember the beech and leaves and the linden leaves in the previous stanza? Well, we might have done that linden leaf and beech leaf thing several times over already, right? Um, And notice by having the leaves of years thickly strewn on the ground, uh, the emphasis being on the dead and fallen leaves on the floor of the forest, it's not about the long leaves on the trees and the green grass anymore and the fair and tall hemlock umbles. Now it's just about the fun. We are measuring time in autumns and winters, right? So we had the autumn winter experience shifting from summer through uh, autumn and into winter in the previous stanza. And now it's like we've been having autumn, potentially autumn and winter many, many times over. Um, uh, now uh, I, I agree for thoughtless. It doesn't necessarily say that he did wander for many winters. Now we're going to come back to your uh, point for Thomas's point in the beginning of the next stanza when winter passed, right? I'm not a hundred percent convinced that that's necessarily literal, right? Meaning that one season of winter, but it could be again, saying where leaves of years are thickly strewn. I mean, like that's a description of a forest floor in winter, right? When, when all the undergrowth is dead and all the trees are leaves are off the trees, what you see are the, you know, the naked boles of the trees and the, and the, you know, the naked branches and then the, um, the, the leaves, right? And it's not just this autumn's leaves that are on the ground. It's the leaves of years, right? You know, many years worth of leaves. So, it's just a description of, of trees in winter. But again, it, it's it's like the previous stanza, which didn't actually say barren sorrow was kind of like a beech leaf, right? It doesn't do that. It just describes the beech leaves and the sighing sound of their falling and invite us to think of barren's condition in connection with that, right? Um, Tolkien is very uh, uh, gentle with his... Um, uh, with his metaphors and his imagery, uh, uh, with like that. Anyway, 
Um, similarly here, the leaves of years, it is winter in Baron's soul, right? Uh, time is passing, but it's winter in Baron's soul. And it's like he's traveling, he's seeking through the winter of, through the, through, through the leaves of, of years, especially again, given the way that the leaves were being connected with her distant dancing and his, uh, sighing heart, right? Um, the leaves of years is, is sort of a potent phrase, but again, it doesn't suggest it does. It doesn't state it right out. It just kind of leaves it there. And as Kate points out, time is a little fudgy in fairy anyway, right? How much time is really passing? Who knows? He probably doesn't know, right? Um, why should we be here with a stopwatch, right? As if we could tell for certain at the very least, it conveys the impression that this winter has gone on for years, right? Or again, many years worth of winters and he doesn't even notice the spring and summer because it's not spring and summer since she's not here, right? There's no golden flowers when she's not there, right? It's just all he hears is the fall of linden leaves uh, when all he's hearing is her dancing off in the, in the, in the great distance. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Um, Belongsman is wondering if is she leaving an actual trail for him to follow? Mm. I don't think so. I don't think she's leading him on in that way at all. Um, again, notice we get to the light of moon and ray of star. Now that's important, right? Um, that's important because, um, we remember starlight and moonlight have both been connected with her. The starlight was what was glimmering on her, uh, and like, because of her right in that first stanza. Um, and then the moonbeam was what he was grasping at, uh, in the third stanza. Um, so we, we have her associated with moon and stars, but notice the role that the moon and the stars are playing here. Right, He sought her ever, wandering far, where leaves of years were thickly strewn, by light of moon and ray of star, in frosty heavens shivering. So he is seeking her by the light of the moon and by the ray of stars. Right, um, So the light is not shining on her. She's not doing that thing. There's no, nothing's glimmering here. Right, Nothing's gl glimmering, nothing's glistening, because she's not there for it to glisten on like it did in the first stanza for us, right? Um, he's using the light now to look for her. Oh, what is he seeing? It's again, it's winter. He's seeing only the years, the leaves of years thickly strewn and by light of moon and by ray of star, he's looking for her and he sees nothing. She's not there, right? All he sees are the stars themselves and the moon itself. And, they are forbidding, right? In the frosty heavens, shivering. Um, the moon and the stars give no warmth, right? They give some light for him to search by, but they give no warmth. They are shivering and frosty, right? In the heavens, distant, remote, cold, right? It's winter, right? That's what it is. Uh, uh, that's what it is for for Baron. Now, Harnuth asks the excellent question, um, is Luthien aware of Baron at this point? N no idea. I 
probably at the time. I mean, when he reached out and did his grasping thing, uh, grasping at moonbeams and she danced away, I think she was aware of the fact that she was, you know, a mortal had trespassed and she was, uh, you know, following plan A, <laughs> fleeing away on dancing feet, uh, lightly, right? Um, uh, you know, she, uh, uh, she was executing, uh, uh, evasion plan Delta or alpha there really. Um, so I think at that point she was aware of him. Is she still thinking about him? Does she know that he's still looking? No reason to think so. Maybe she is, but I don't see any reason to think so. This is a one-sided thing so far for everything that we can tell. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Uh, second quatrain. Her mantle glinted in the moon. As on a hilltop high and far she danced, and at her feet was strewn a mist of, of silver quivering. Okay, so her mantle glinted in the moon. So now, so the, the, the light of moon was revealing nothing, right? The frosty, shivering light of the moon illuminated nothing in his search, and now her mantle is glinting in the moon. We've got glinting again, right? Uh, because her mantle is there once more. As on a hilltop high and far she danced. Stop the presses at she danced, right? You've got to pause there. You got you, you to gotta feel that, right? As on a hilltop high and far she danced. And at her feet was strewn a mist of silver quivering. Okay, so... Uh, shivering, quivering. Um, she's dancing again. And he's not just hearing her like like uh, the flying sound of feet as light as linden leaves. He sees her, and he sees her mantle glinting in the moon, but it's far away. He's not seeing her in a glade through the hemlock umbles, right? He is seeing her high and far. On a hilltop, high and far, she danced. And there's something at her feet now, a, fe a mist of silver quivering. Like the light of moon and ray of star uh, and the frost. So frost is normally in the winter, all winter imagery we've had so far, last two stanzas, well, second half of, of last stanza and all of this stanza, right? So uh, to see something, um, you know, glimmering at her feet, it's winter, Right. So frost, you know, so the frosty heavens, the light of the moon from the frosty heavens has descended and is, is like a mist of silver around her feet. It's not, I think, frost, or at least it's not just frost. Right. It is like the light of the moon, the rays of the stars themselves as the, like, again, they were made active in a sense, the light of the moon and stars especially the stars in the first stanza, when they were shining on her, right? That same thing is happening again. And it's like the very frost uh, is being transformed. Um, having seen her, right? The winter uh, that had been his, you know, in his heart uh, for the previous, you know, in the, in the previous stanza, no more, right? Now that is, it's, it's, it's not frost anymore. It's a mist of silver quivering. Uh, quivering, I think. Notice the difference between quivering and shivering. Uh, shivering, 
not a happy word, right? Um, a very lonely, desolate kind of word, alone out there, shivering and cold in the dark. Um, and now quivering, right? Which is like shivering and is a three-syllable <clears throat> rhyme for shivering. Um, but again, very different now, suggesting potentially eagerness, his eagerness, right? Um, the, the light and the frost, everything is dancing, right, with her as she is dancing again. Um, but she's awful far away. Um, let's look at the, uh, the rhymes again. Notice same exact structure. The A and B rhymes both begin and end with the same word. Far, star, far. Right? Oh, that's beautiful, even just as it is. First far is him wandering far. Right? The farness of his wandering. The end, in the second quatrain, we have the farness of her from him. Right? But notice how that second farness sounds different from the first farness. Right? The first farness is just how many miles he's logged in trying to find in his seeking. Right? This, like, indefinite sense of farness that he has been wandering and will continue to wander until he finds her again. Right? The second farness is how far she is away. He's seeing her from a long distance away, right? So she's uh, high and far away from him. But that is not the same kind of farness, right? Uh, when I'm saying things like the same kind of farness, I can't help but think of uh, the White Knight in uh, Through the Looking Glass. It was all kinds of fastness with me. Um, uh, but anyway, don't worry about it if you don't get the reference. Um, I, the White Knight is one of my favorite characters in Through the Looking Glass. Uh, anyway, um, it's a different kind of farness, right? It's in fact a farness which emphasizes her relative nearness, right? Yeah, she's still far away, but doggone it, she's in sight, right? That's amazing. Um, so, um, okay, and then what's in the middle? What's the, the central rhyme? Because that's now the, 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 the repeated shape of these stanzas, right? Uh, the, the central rhyme, far and far and in the middle, ray of star, right? that starlight, which, that empty starlight, right? So you've got his, the farness of his wandering, the empty rays of stars that aren't glinting on anything, right? And then you've got the farness of her uh, seen from a distance, right? Um, and then the B rhymes. I think I called the other ones the B rhymes, or the A rhymes, of course. Strewn, moon, strewn. Notice how the, the parallel is even more close now. Uh, just as with both the A and the B rhymes in this stanza, you get the repeated words, uh, top and bottom, and in the middle, you get star and moon, right? So the A and B rhymes are star and moon rhymes, far strewn in this stanza. So the whole stanza revolves around the stars and the moon, the stars and the, the light of stars and light of moon, which uh, did not illuminate her, both of which were empty at the time, right? At first, but now the moon is coming back around again. The, the ray of star was still empty, but the moon, ah, the moon is now glinting on her mantle, right? So we have... And again, notice the difference, the transformation, as so often happens in this these symmetrical quatrains, right? The journey from the thickly strewn leaves of years. I mean, man, I get like the almost despair 
associated with that? How many years has he been wondering? At the very least, how many years does it feel like he's been wondering? Who knows, right? Even if he's not been wondering for years, the mere fact that he's looking at the leaves of years to know, yeah, the leaves that just fell this autumn, right? Those like the 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 the, the sighing sound of the beech leaves of my heart, right? are going to stretch out indefinitely, right? I mean, like, I am surrounded... This this wood is a veritable, you know, graveyard of... of uh, oh, what's the phrase? A graveyard of... of, uh, of, of... Oh, what's the adjective? I'm trying to remember Anne Shirley's adjective. Graveyard of forgotten hopes. Ah, I can't remember the adjective. Anyway, that's the first strewn, right? It's the... It's the it's that buried. Thank you. Of bur- is, is it hopes, Carita? A graveyard of buried hopes. Um, sorry, I can't. I, I, Anne of Green Gables in, in the brain here. Um, by the way, Anne Shirley would love this poem. But anyhow. Um, okay, so um, uh, Emily Starr would love it too. But I, I think I think actually uh, 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 Anne would like it even better. Um, okay, so thickly strewn leaves of years, right? Um and then, uh, oh, forlorn hopes. That might be it, Eleanor. Oh, it might be forlorn hopes. Maybe. Not sure. Anyway, sorry. Okay. Um, thickly strewn leaves of years, right? About the depth of his loneliness, the depth of his sorrow, the indefinite stretching out of his sorrow, right? And now the mist of silver quivering is strewn at her feet as she danced. Again, the transformation of the frost into light, right? The fullness of the light, which had been empty, revealing nothing in his search in the first quatrain, now is strewn in a mist of quivering silver about her feet, right? Um, uh, amazing, amazing. Um, okay, Next stanza. When winter passed, she came again, and her song released the sudden spring like rising lark and falling rain and melting water bubbling. He saw the elven flowers spring about her feet and healed again. He longed by her to dance and sing upon the grass untroubling. Okay, so now notice. um, We get when winter passed, right? So... Again, does this mean it's one season? I don't think this proves it, right? Um, of co- when he sees her again, it's spring now, right? It doesn't matter. It could have been 10 years, right? But it was 10 years of winter because she wasn't there, right? Now it's spring again. It doesn't, it's not really about, the, I mean, it is about the seasons, but it's not really about the seasons in another sense, right? Um, but, uh, but anyway, his winter has passed because she has come again and her song released the sudden spring. Now we have no reason to think that that's not literally happening, right? Um, uh, that flowers are springing about her feet. That seems to be a thing that's happening, right? Um, so it could be literally the passing of a literal winter into spring, but it's not really about that. Right. Notice the business about larks and rains and melting water, which suggest a literal passing from winter to spring. Those are all similes like rising lark and falling rain and melting water bubbling. Um, what is like the rising lark and like the falling rain and like the melting water bubbling? Her song, right? Um, her song is like those things. And thus it releases the sudden spring. 
right? Spring happens because of her song, right? And again, it's, you don't, it just doesn't have to be like nature spirit thing in order for that to be true because the, um, the, the, uh, um, the, it's been pretty metaphorical all along, right? The seasonal thing. Um, okay. Oh, let's see. Um, so much more. Every stanza. Um, I really like the the way in which he plays with cause and effect in those first two lines, right? Notice how those first two lines themselves are kind of symmetrical. When winter passed, she came again, right? I should say she came again, as is clearly the sound of, of this line, um, the more archaic pronunciation. When winter passed, she came again. Um, so first comes winter, like the passing of winter. At the passing of winter, she as if the passing of winter caused her coming, right? But then the second line, her song released the sudden spring, suggests the causality is the other way around, right? She came again, and that's what caused the winter to pass, right? The winter passed because she came again. Um, and that's uh, kind of lovely, like the way that the causality is... Uh, um, is uh, unclear there, right? I think deliberately unclear. Um, like rising lark and falling rain and melting water bubbling. Um, he saw the elven flowers spring about her feet and healed again. He longed by her to dance and sing upon the grass untroubling. Okay. It's a really interesting thing that happens here. Notice there's a variation. Once again, we get a break to the pattern. In the previous stanza, the break to the pattern was in the rhythm, right? She danced, right? We've got to perk up our ears that she danced. Um, yeah. Um, now, uh, Okay, so let's uh, but let's get in. and but I know, <laughs> I know it's getting late. I don't care. <laughs> I'll keep going. <laughs> it's not kids. Not like we can stop. You know, uh, it's not exactly like we can stop. Um, uh, that's this is that is less of a less of an option in this discussion than in almost anywhere else. Anyway, okay, hang on. Let's, let's keep going, though. We're getting super efficient, though, talking about these stanzas. Okay. Um, we, but as I was saying, we get another variation in the pattern. Do you see? Do you notice the, 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 the variation in the pattern? Right? Notice the variation? What varies? What's different? How is this stanza different from all the other stanzas? You notice? Look at the rhymes. She came again, sudden spring, falling rain, flowers spring, healed again, dance and sing. You notice? Now, you're right, Ambrosius Aurelianus, we do get another pause, right? He saw the elven flowers spring about her feet and healed again. 
he longed by her to dance and sing. Yes, that pause. It's not quite as striking as she danced, mostly because it's in the middle of the wine, right? About her feet and healed again. So it's a little bit more like when winter passed, she came again, right? Or like rising lark and falling rain. When the pause comes at the dead middle of the line, it's a little bit less striking than she danced. And at her feet was strewn, right? Um, but nevertheless, I agree. That's different. Um, when winter passed, she came again and her song released the sudden spring. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, he saw the elven flowers spring about her feet and healed again. He longed by her to dance. I agree that that pause is a bigger pause. Not quite as striking as I said the, as the previous stanza, but it's but it's a bigger pause. Um, uh, okay, good. Yeah. Uh, you guys are talking about the B and the C rhymes matching. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's still a C rhyme because we still get the, the, the trisyllabic thing, right? Bubbling and untroubling rhyme with each other in a different way than spring and sing rhyme, right? Um, but I agree that is an interesting and important connection, right? The connection between the B rhyme and the C rhyme, right? Because let's make no mistake... We know which rhyme is emulating which, right? The C rhyme has been consistent all the way through, right? This is the sixth stanza of the poem, and every single C rhyme has been a present participle, right? Has been an ing word. Now, for the first time, the one of the two, one of the A, a or B rhymes is an ing rhyme as well, right? Um, so, spring spring, sing, connect with that primary thing. And of course, we haven't even mentioned the, the, the fact, the significance of the whole present participle thing, right? That um, a sort of description of an, of an active thing, of a thing that's happening, right, is, uh, is, is the, the, the note, the continual note of the C rhyme all the way through. This stanza... This stanza is about things that happen, right? Um, after who knows how long uh, of deadness and the leaves of years being thickly strewn, right? Uh, now all of a sudden, life is coming back again, right? Um, and that growth and that movement um, is, uh, is connected. Right? It's not identical to, but it's connected to that C rhyme. Um, yeah. Yes. Oh, good, Kate. Keep looking at that B rhyme. Right? That B rhyme is where it's at in this stanza, as far as variation is concerned. As Kate points out, spring, which is the repeated word in the B rhyme, is used once as a noun and once as a verb. We haven't seen that before, right? Um, I mean, notice, remember, we've got, we've got 
uh, strewn and strewn and far and far. We've got leaves and leaves and sound and sound. Both times sound is a noun, not a verb, right? You know, feet, feet, roam and roam, you know, nouns and verbs consistently. Um, but uh, now we have the sudden spring noun, the elven flowers spring verb, right? Which is really cool, drawing attention to the way in which that noun is associated with that verb, right? Spring being the time when things spring uh, out of the ground, like the bubbling, uh, and uh, uh, presumably like um, untroubling. Um, but notice something else. The shape is different. The shape of the rhyme is different. It's the first time we've ever seen this in the poem. The repeated words are not at the ends with the different one in the middle. Right? We've got spring, spring, sing, not spring, sing, spring, which is what we would expect, which what every other stanza has led us to expect, right? We get that with the A rhyme. Again, rain, again. Right? And that's a beautiful set uh, of rhyming words as we've seen before. Um, you know, several, the, the trend has been sad before. Right. Uh, from, you know, from the trend in stanza three, from, you know, weary feet uh, to dancing, from doom to Rome to still to Rome. Right. Um, it's a sad trend right here. When winter passed, she came again. Right. Uh, he saw the elven flowers spring about her feet and healed again. He longed by her to dance and sing, right? So she comes again, and when she comes again, he is healed again, right? Um, so her coming leads to his healing. So now, like the arrow's pointing in the other direction, right? As we move from the first half to the second half with that repeated word in the A rhyme linking the first quatrain to the second quatrain, right? And what is in the middle? What's between the her coming again and him being healed again? the falling rain, right? What is her song like? It is like the falling rain that is nourishing the ground, uh, like those, uh, 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 you know, uh, one operator with his, with her, with his sure as salta, the drought of March hath pierced to the rota and bathed every vine and switched liqueur of which vertu and jonder it is the floor. Everybody knows this, right? Um, that the rains in the spring, uh, if you think about Chaucer's imagery there in those first few lines, right? That the, the rains of April, uh, bothed every vine in switch liqueur of which vertu engendered is the fluor, right? The, uh, the, 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 the liqueur, the, the, uh, the, the liquor of the wine, of the, of the rain, right? Bathes the veins of the, of the plants, of the flowers that are still under the earth, right? Um, it is bathing them in richness and in virtue, right? In power, in energy and making them um, making them sprout, right? Um, anyway, so, so, so the, the falling rain, right? So she comes again, healed again, and in the middle, the falling rain, right? Like his healing. Um, but not so the B rhyme, right? For the first time we get spring, spring, sing, right? N again, not the order that we would exp express. So how does that work? How does that connect the two stanzas? And her song released the sudden spring. He saw the elven flowers spring, right? The spring is the noun, is the thing that she is releasing, that her song is releasing, right? 
and then he is seeing the flowers spring, right? He is seeing the effects of her song. And then again, the word um, sing right, is what is is what we get now at the end, not in the middle, but at the end. He longed by her to dance and sing, right? What we get at the end is his longing to be with her. It's not as is normal, sort of contained within the two springs, right? What we get is his longing to dance and to sing by her, right? But he's still at a distance. He's still outside, right? She's there. The spring is being released by her song. The flowers are springing. Um, he wants to dance and to sing with her. Um, but it's, uh, it's, it's not in the middle. It's, uh, it's outside that. Um, and uh, upon the grass, untroubling. He longed by her to dance and sing upon the grass, untroubling. He wants to be, he wishes he were untroubling, right? Again, he's been healed. He, he still needs more healing. He's still troubled. He's physically healed. Uh, presumably his feet aren't weary anymore. His, probably his feet were tending towards weariness, right? But, um, uh, not, uh, not so much, right? Uh, anymore. He's been healed again. Um, but he, uh, is still, he is still lonely, right? And yes, I think, um, um, Ambrosius Aurelianus, uh, he wishes his open presence wouldn't trouble her. Yes. Yes. Untroubling in that sense, not only untroubling to himself, but untroubling to her, Yes. Notice, by the way, what's he doing? Nothing. Longing is what he's doing. Not grasping, not trying to grasp any moonbeams at this point, right? Uh, he is only, he has seen her from a distance. He is hearing her song. He is seeing this flower spring. He is longing to dance by her untroubling. But that's, that's all we've seen him doing here so far. Um, Absolutely, Mad Violinist. It's the next thing I was going to say. Notice how we are seeing symmetry of stanzas, right? This is stanza six, which is passing from winter into spring, which corresponds with stanza four, which was passing through autumn into winter. Absolutely. So we see that. We see that uh, again, uh, that working very symmetrically between stanzas four and six. Um, yeah, very good. Very good. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. All right, let's keep going because I'm getting in trouble for going late. But I can't. I can't. I'm sorry. Can't help it. Can't help it. Not apologizing. Again she fled, but swift he came to Nuviel. To Nuviel he called her by her elvish name, and there she halted, listening. One moment stood she, and a spell his voice laid on her. Baron came, and doom fell on to Nuviel, that in his arms lay glistening. Okay. Um, yeah, no, you can't stop the signal, Druid's Fire. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> and Sharon is completely right about how wholly unapologetic I am about going late tonight. Okay. Again she fled, but swift he came to Nuviel, to Nuviel. He called her by her elvish name. By the way, I love the way in which to Nuviel, to Nuviel is a perfect... It's a perfect line, right? It's a perfect iambic tetrameter line. Um, to new VL, to new VL. 
Um, I also love how Tolkien has put the accent marks in there to make sure everybody pronounces like no one, no one better read that line and say like Tinuviel, Tinuviel, <laughs> right or something wacky like that. Uh, and like let's be, let, let us be in no uncertain uh, state about where the emphasis falls in that word, right? Um, I might, you know, as a child, be able to uh, uh, pronounce Gilgalad wrong, uh, but I never pronounced Tenuvial wrong, right? This poem made sure of that. Um, even a relatively tone-deaf teenager was able to catch that in this in this line. Okay, again she fled, but swift he came. Uh, look at the action. Have we ever gotten that much action in one line before? I don't think so. Not only do we have two active verses fled and came, uh, but we have the, with, by two different actors, right? In that line. That's, um, um, that's amazing. Um, and yes, for thoughtless, very good. Another variation, Right, which should be kind of shocking, because I'm pretty sure you're right, Fourth Dauntless. If we go back, have we ever? No, we have not ever, ever, ever seen a period anywhere except after line four and line eight. Right, period. Sent each quatrain has been one sentence. That's been a rule of this poem through six stanzas. And what do we get? Again, she fled, but swift he came. Period. Tenuviel, Tenuviel. He called her by her elvish name, and there she halted listening. And then we get a quatrain like we're used to, right? Um, yeah, so Kate, I agree. We get we get that that short sentence, which is just like a, an action sentence, right? Again, she fled, but swift he came. Tenuvia. We get the like the the urgency. Stuff is happening. This is the crisis of the whole poem, right? This is it. I mean, if if this doesn't work out. Like back to the back to the leaves of years for him, right? Uh, the leaves of an indefinite number of years. It's going to be winter for a heck of a long time if this doesn't pan out right here, right? This is the crisis of the poem, and we can so we see that in the pacing and the pauses in the in the lines. Again, she fled, but swift he came. Tenuviel, Tenuviel. He called her by her elvish name, and there she halted, listening. One moment stood she, and a spell his voice laid on her. Baron came, and doom fell on Tenuviel, that in his arms lay glistening. Another, um, yes, Bruce, exactly. I was just going to say that same thing. Another major, the, what, what now corresponds to she danced, right, is Baron came, right? Yeah, Baron came. His voice laid on her. Baron came. That pause. Very striking again, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and doom fell on Tenuviel. Again she fled, but swift he came. Tenuviel, Tenuviel, he called her by her elvish name, and there she halted listening. One moment stood she, and a spell, his voice laid on her. Baron came, and doom fell on Tenuviel, that in his arms lay glistening. His voice laid on her barren came. That's that's the most striking um, pause we've had in any line, right? Because notice, unlike she danced, she danced is at least an iambic foot, right? Um, that's at least an iambic foot. Uh, 
he's asking us to pause in the middle of an iambic foot. His voice laid on her barren cane. Right? That's how it should go. That's what this whole poem has trained us to hear. Um, his voice laid on her barren cane. Right? No. His voice laid on her barren cane. Um, and I think the emphasis, it's true, it's kind of funny. Um, it's kind of funny that, that the Baron came like Morgoth came uh, thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, that is that is really fun. Um, but I think the, the important thing here, uh, the it's easy to, to focus on the Baron came, but I actually think the significance of the stop comes from the first half of the line, not the second half. Um, One moment stood she and a spell his voice laid on her. The spell has been laid. Like at this point, in the middle of the line, in the middle of a foot, the spell falls. Right? She is suddenly taken. And 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 she's taken off step. Right? She's dancing. There she's she's doing her thing. She's dancing. He steps out and does his grasping at moonbeams thing in the original. She didn't miss a beat, right? Off she dances. Woohoo! Right? She's gone. Right? Of course, that's what you do. Again, that's evasion plan alpha, so no problem. But here, she stops. Like, in the middle of a measure, she stops. In the middle of a foot, she stops. And a spell his voice laid on her. Baron came and doom fell on Tenuvio. Um, yes, it is kind of like a record scratch. <laughs> I agree. Uh, that's, um, um, yeah, that, that, that's a great parallel, Mad Violinist. That's good. Um, yeah, and I, I agree. Kate and Dime are both really interested in the, in the use, his use of a colon here, right? Uh, that's a, um, a very, um, um, a, a very unusual, um, uh, punctuation here, right? Um, so it does, it brings in this stop, but it's not a period, right? Uh, it's, 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 it's a stop. It's an awkward stop, right? But something is following. So I'm not saying that Baron came isn't important, right? Baron came is really, you know, Baron came and doom fell on Tenuvio. Matt, the and there, right? You know, we were talking about the ands at the beginning of lines, Right, the, look at the ands in these in this stanza. Right, and there she halted, listening, and doom fell on Tenuvio. Right, yeah. Um, so yeah, Mike, that's a good way to say uh, to say that the colon is an anticipatory stop. Right, yeah, yeah, it really is um, a stop, but it uh, it comes. Um, you know, something is coming, and of course, it's Baron who's coming, and uh, doom is coming with Baron. Um, remember, he was doomed to Rome at the beginning. So doom has been associated with Baron from the beginning. It seemed like it was just his doom, like doom to wander, doom to Rome, doom to be lonely, right? Uh, you know, I mean, that was, that was the Baron's doom was a sad doom. Now Baron brings doom. Doom falls on her, right? Transforming his doom, right? No longer doomed to Rome. No longer doomed uh, to wander, no longer doomed to loneliness. Um, Tenuviel, Tenuviel, he called her by her elvish name, and there she halted, listening. 
listening. By the way, of course, we notice that both of the words, the C rhymes in this stanza, listening and glistening, are repeated words. So it would behoove us to go back and see, just as we're connecting quatrains with rhymes, um, we should connect stanzas with rhymes. So listening. There she halted listening. That should make us think of... In the silent forest, listening, right? Baron left. So after she runs away, right? Lightly fled on dancing feet and left him lonely still to roam in the silent forest, listening. Now she is pausing, listening. The listening was him when he was abandoned. Now, right? Now she is listening as she is not abandoning him, right? She is listening to him. And yes, you guys are... um, you guys were talking about uh, the significance of the speaking, right? How tenuviel, tenuviel is the first word. It's the first dialogue, right? We get into, but no one has said anything in this poem, except maybe the piper, but who cares? Um, so anyway, yeah, so there, that's, uh, um, uh, that's clearly important. And it's a spell, right? Her name from his lips is like a spell, Um a spell his voice laid on her, right? Her name is an enchantment. Ah, but here's the irony. And it's a very striking irony, right? The irony is his voice lays a spell on her, right? That she is enchanted by her name, right? Said by him. Um, so, yeah, a, a spell, the archaic meaning of spell, it just means, like, it's a thing you say. Um, it can be, like, news. Um, or, uh, but, yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, like, yeah. Something spoken, basically, really vaguely, um, uh, is, uh, is what it means. And, yes, Belangsmond, we do have, um, uh, we do have him naming her, essentially, right? Although there's this sense, and I have to admit, I don't fully understand what that third line means. He called her by her elvish name. In what sense her elvish name? Um, is this in the sense of... Um, um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, oh, interesting, Matt. That's an interesting connection with the Yeats poem. yeah. Oh, that would that that would be interesting to look at, especially when we've got a glimmering girl in that same line, Matt. There's got to be something there, right? Um, but um, anyway, elvish name, elvish name. Why is it her elvish name? Um, her name in the elvish language, yes, but it's not. He knows it. <clears throat> no reason for him to know it, right? He calls her that. Um, it's more like a naming, like him naming her, than him like. Uh, happening to know her name like he called her by her elvish name as if that's some kind of password like like Rumpelstiltskin right like he has learned somebody told him her name again like the Rumpelstiltskin thing right um that it's a secret and he knows the secret and so therefore has like been granted some kind of power over him no it's like he just says it right um but um yeah, so, um, and yeah, Kate, you're right. The poem does not tell us that Tenuvial means nightingale. Um, yeah, I, the, the sense that I get from it, Kate, the, uh, he called her by her elvish name. This is what he, like, 
he this is the name that fits her. I think that he is naming her here. And it turns out to be like her name, right? Um, remember that remember that in the old days, in the Book of Lost Tales, Tenuviel wasn't Luthien is a late name for her. Her original name was just Tenuviel. The story is called The Tale of Tenuviel in the Book of Lost Tales. Um Tenuviel is her first name, not her nickname, uh, in the original version. Um so he's like divining what her name truly is. Uh, it is a little bit, Tomas, it's, it is like a tiny bit Ursula Le Guin there, right? With the like finding her true name, right? It's, it's not exactly as, you know, it's not, it's not a hundred percent earthsy, but it's, uh, it, I think there is an element of that there in some sense. Um, especially given with the spell and the kind of the power, the enchantment that he's able to, uh, bring upon her by naming her name, right? Kate, yes, it's like he's moved by some power to name her as she is. Yes, he is inspired, in a sense, to call her Tenuviel, Tenuviel. Um, and there she halted, listening, like he was listening before. A moment stood she, and a spell his voice laid on her. Baron came, and doom fell on Tenuviel that in his arms lay glistening. Um, now, um, look at the, oh, so and the glistening, of course, right? We remember the glistening, right, from way back. Um, and notice it was rhyming with listening before. Notice how that gets reversed again. Again, the symmetry thing. Um, this was in stanza three, right? Three, four, five, six, seven. Oh, look, perfectly symmetrical, right? The listening and glistening are both the C are are, are the C rhymes in stanza three and stanza seven, right? Which are exactly symmetrical to each other in the shape of the poem, huh? And they're reversed, right? Uh, glistening was first, listening was second, they're reversed the second time around. She halts listening, and then she lays in his arm. she lies in his arms, glistening. Look at, um, uh, he, uh, the first glistening was his grasping at moonbeams, right? So, oh man, the way that that corresponds, the, his first effort to grab her, right? To grasp at her, which failed. Because he can't, you can't catch a moonbeam, right? Um, but now he's not catching a moonbeam. Now instead, she has lain in in his arms. She's the one who stopped, right? She's the one who acts by not acting, of course, right? By stopping, by halting. A moment stood she, right? And she lay in his arms. He didn't grab her, right? He didn't successfully kidnap her. Um, she stopped and she turned. And now she is lying in his arms, uh, glistening like that moonbeam that he failed to grasp before. Um, look at the A and B rhymes. Swift he came, barren came. Right. Notice how 
the first is a chase scene, and the second one is the sound of inevitability, right? Baron came and doom fell on Tenuviel. Love that. Love how the, the two different, the comings of Baron at the beginning and end of the stanza feel so different, right? And what's in the middle? Her name, right? Her elvish name is what lies between the shift from how he's coming at first to how he's coming the second time, right? And look at the B-rhyme. This B-rhyme is my favorite in the entire poem, right? Tenuviel, Tenuviel. Her name is the B-rhyme. Right. And what does it rhyme with? Of course, spell. Right. Spell is in the middle because her name is itself a spell. And the first time is the actual casting of the spell. Right. Tenuviel. Tenuviel. And the second time, doom fell on Tenuviel. Notice how doom fell on um, is... It is only... It doesn't say, and Baron laid a doom upon her, right? It's, it's not, this is not something Baron did. Again, his agency, what's he doing? He, he's not grasping, right? He's not chasing. He's pursuing in the first stanza. But then things change in that second line. Um, he calls to her, and she halts. Um... Again, we don't get his actions. We don't get his. We don't get a capture. Um, he comes to her, and she allows him to come, right, and lays in his arms, glistening, lies in his arms. The whole past present tense thing there makes it awkward to talk about. Um, so beautiful. As Baron looked into her eyes within the shadows of her hair, the trembling starlight of the skies, he saw their mirrored shimmering. To Nuviel, the elven fair, immortal maiden, elven wise, about him cast her shadowy hair and arms like silver glimmering. Okay. What do we get here? What do we see? Okay. As Baron looked into her eyes within the shadows of her hair, notice what's happening now. Oh, it was just like at the beginning, right? Where he's looking through the leaves. What does he see when he peeks through the leaves? Her hair, right? Her hair following behind her, right? That sense of togetherness, but like it's a so near but yet so far kind of situation, right? Now he's not looking through the leaves at her hair going by. He's looking through her hair at her eyes, right? So cool. Um... Uh, the trembling starlight of the skies he saw there mirrored shimmering, right? Uh, is the starlight trembling or is she trembling? Again, like, are the leaves sighing or is he sighing, as we got before? Um, he saw there mirrored shimmering. Uh, and of course we're getting shimmering and glimmering. Where did we get shimmering and glimmering before? Well, of course we got that in the first stanza. Shimmering and glimmering of stars in shadow. Shimmering. And now, and uh, and the light of stars was in her hair and in her raiment glimmering. So the starlight was shimmering and glimmering both times, both times presumably on her hair in the first stanza, as we, the viewers, were being introduced to her at the very beginning. And now, Baron is seeing the light of the stars uh, shimmering, mirrored in her eyes. Right again, it's not, he's now seeing past her hair uh, and into her eyes both at the beginning and the end of that first quatrain, 
right? The trembling starlight of the skies, he saw their mirrored shimmering. Remember how cold and frosty the stars, the rays of stars were in the sky a couple stanzas back, right? Things have changed a great deal. Um, and the light is no longer, notice it's not on. It was, gl- it was glimmering on her hair before, right? Now the light is, is, uh, is within the shadows of her hair. Right, her hair is like a shadow around. It's like now the, the the glimmering light of starlight that we noticed before. Right, that he sees on her hair and on her mantle um, is that is just a a, a pale reflection. Right, um, that is like nothing compared to the starlight of the skies, the trembling starlight of the skies that is mirrored, shimmering in her eyes. Right, which he sees within the shadow of her hair. Tenuviel, the elven fair, immortal maiden, elven wise, about him cast her shadowy hair and arms like silver glimmering. She casts her shadowy hair around him. So notice how it's her hair which binds this stanza together. It's the B rhyme, right? Hair and hair at the beginning. And what's in the middle? Elven fair, right? Tenuviel, the elven fair. Um, so he is. That first is like him again, like Baron Kane, right? We see him, him approaching, him looking into her eyes within the shadow of her hair. He is sort of penetrating the shadows and seeing her eyes, right? Uh, now encountering her, not just seeing her from a distance, encountering her for the first time. But it's not just, it's not unilateral, right? It is not just, she's not passive as he is merely approaching her and encountering her, right? Instead, now she is casting her shadowy hair around him, right? If her eyes, if the starlight, the gl- starlight glimmering in her eyes is what is within the shadow of her hair, now he is within the shadow of her hair as well as she casts her shadow around him and brings him into that inner secret starlight trembling, uh, 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 you know, uh, shimmering of her sort of most beautiful inner self. And she puts her arms around him. He was grasping at moonbeams before, right? He was the one getting grabby uh, at the beginning. He's not grabby now. He's being grabbed, right? She is the one who extends her hands now to him and envelops him. He's in, she's enveloped him in the shadow of her hair and then envelops him in the silver glimmering of her arms. Uh, the silver glimmering, which is kind of like the, uh, the what was it, the mist of silver quivering. Uh, that's where we got silver before, right? The frost that was transformed uh, into starlight and moonlight uh, previously. Uh, and now her arms are like uh, silver uh, glimmering, like that starlight in her eyes. Um, so, uh, yeah, and Kate, I agree. Knowing the tale, knowing the tradition of Luthien, like the significance of her hair and her shadowy hair, um, it, it makes it even a bigger deal, doesn't it? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good. Now, look at the, uh, um, the, uh, good. Oh, yeah, that's awesome. Mad, look at what Mad Violin and Mad Violinist was noticing here. Although the B rhyme, works out perfectly in the traditional pattern, hair, elven fair, hair, right? Um, Look at the A-rhyme. As Baron looked into her eyes, the trembling starlight of the skies, immortal maiden, elven wise. What? Perfect rhymes, but no repeated word, right? Um, 
it drops the, that pattern altogether, right? Um, her eyes, the trembling starlight in the skies. So the, 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 the starlight of the skies is mirrored in her eyes, but then it just goes to immortal maiden elven wise, right? Just a description of her and of her wisdom. Tenuviel the elven fair. Okay, we've established that she's really cute. Okay, Tenuviel the elven fair, immortal maiden elven wise. Notice what we're getting in those two lines, right? The last two lines of the stanza give us about him cast her shadowy hair and arms like silver glimmering. There we get, she takes him. She reaches out to him. She envelops him. She, he doesn't grab her. She grabs him, right? We get the mutuality of their coming together there. Um, he has come to her. She has enfolded him. Um, the first two lines of, this, of the last quatrain of this stanza, Tenuviel the elven fair, immortal maiden elven wise, um, establishes what a darn big deal that is, right? For her to do this. Um, like, do we all realize who's doing the accepting here, right? Do we, like, Baron, are you processing this right now, <laughs> right? This is not how fairy tales end. Mortals who wander into fairy and go prancing off into, into fairy circles. Uh, where elven maidens are dancing, this doesn't happen. They don't halt and turn to you and cast their shadowy hair about you and their arms like silver glimmering. It doesn't work that way, right? And again, we get that emphasized. Tenuviel, the elven fair, immortal maiden, elven wise. Um, we don't get something about her eyes there in that stanza, which is what we would expect as Baron looked into her eyes, right? Or maybe in a sense... Um, maybe in a sense we are, right? What is in her eyes? Wisdom, right? Um, uh, the, 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 you know, the wisdom of an immortal maiden. Um, she's a maiden. And notice that the kind of uh, irony, not quite irony, um, but contrast, no, irony of that phrase, immortal maiden, right? Maiden suggests youth. I mean, literally, it denotes virginity, but it suggests youth, right? Um, if she is an elven maiden, uh, this she's not an elven queen. She's not an elven matriarch, right? She's an elven maiden. She looks young. Um, there's this sense of youth about her. But to be an immortal maiden, right, ever young, um, that's a big deal, right? And she's elven wise. Not just wise. She's wise. That's a big deal. But she's not just wise. She's elven wise, right? Um, uh, as well as elven fair. Those two words together, elven fair and elven wise. Um it's a big deal, right? Really, really big deal. Um, <laughs> Kate Neville says, "You named it, you bought it." Yeah, this is uh, this is what he's getting here, and it's uh, it's really amazing. And, and Mad Violence, as you say, it breaks the pattern, right? Her eyes break the pattern. There's no coming back to her eyes again, right? Or if we try to come back to her eyes, what do we get? You know, we get immortal maiden, elven wise, right? Like it's you can't. Uh, there's no. There's no simple return to that pattern there. 
Long was the way that fate them bore, o'er stony mountains cold and gray, through halls of iron and darkling door, and woods of nightshade morrowless. The sundering seas between them lay, and yet at last they met once more, and long ago they passed away in the forest singing sorrowless. Um... Yeah, yeah. Oh, and Matt, you're absolutely right. Both Elven Fair and Elven Wise have hyphens, as if suggesting that there's like a, yeah, a, a word for that, a single word, right? Um, yeah. Um, uh, Mike says yada yada about this stanza. And then they did some stuff and whatever. But anyway, like the main thing, like, did we talk about her arms like her arms like silver glimmering cast about him, right? Like, that the end, right? And they lived happily ever after. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but anyway, so I, I get that. But let's still let's still try to look at these stanzas here. Long was a way that fate them bore, or stony mountains cold and gray. Wait a second, stony mountains. Hang on a second. Wait a second. You know, I am pretty sure. There Baron came from mountains cold and lost he wandered under leaves. So we're reversing the direction, right? Baron came from the mountains and was lonely and wandering and roaming and all that stuff. Now long was the way that fate them bore. They've got a they're they're, they're gonna they've, they've got some roaming to do, right? Um and not just not just idle roaming, not just searching roaming, right? They have a they have a journey to take and it's going to take them back out of bliss and into hardship again back to stony mountains cold and gray like those stony mountains that didn't sound great the cold mountains that baron came from through halls of iron and darkling door and woods of nightshade morrowless they're going to go through the mountains and when they go to the other side of the mountains there's going to be a forest but it's not going to be like this forest we're not talking about woven what, what was it woven woven who, who was woven I want to make sure I get it right. Where was it? Woven. Uh, why can't I find the weaving? <laughs> I've lost the. I've, I've lost the woven woods. There we go. Phew. Yeah, woods. Um, woven woods. We're not. We're not. We're not. We're not in woven woods of Elvenholm anymore, right? Woods of nightshade, morrowless. That sounds bad. That sounds bad, right? Like a halls of iron and darkling door. We don't need to know the whole story to know. Again, that sounds bad. Right, so they're gonna go into hardship. They're gonna go into darkness. They're gonna go into danger, into the shadow of death, woods of nightshade, morrowless, where tomorrow doesn't come. Right, you go into these woods of nightshade, and tomorrow is not gonna come. Right, um, the sundering seas between them lay, and yet at last they met once more, and long ago they passed away in the faro in the forest singing sorrowless. Um, okay, so notice, as Mad Violinist was already pointing out, um, notice no repetitions in this last stanza. Her eyes broke it, like permanently. We, we don't get any more, right? We got our hair repeated, we don't repeat her eyes. And, and we get no repetition in the entire last stanza. Bore, door, more. Gray, lay, away. No repeated words, right? So that structure's gone now at this point. And no one else, of course, is gone, very obviously, right? The sea rhyme. And sea rhyme is still there, but it's different for the first time. The last stanza is completely different. Um, we're, we don't, we're not a present participle anymore. Morrowless and sorrowless. But that 
Oh my goodness, right? The transition. Mar- again, Marlis Mar- sounds pretty like tomorrow's never going to come. That sounds like they're headed off on a journey. So the first quatrain sounds like a bit of a downer. Well, we don't know the details, right? But it sounds like a bit of a downer. Okay, so they, you know, they got together and that was cool and everything. But then they had to go through stony mountains, halls of iron, darkling doors, woods of nightshade. It was bad and tomorrow never came. The end, right? That sounds pretty depressing. However, notice where it ends, right? The sundering seas between them lay. Okay, that doesn't sound good either. And yet at last they met once more, and long ago they passed away in the forest singing sorrowless. So, Mike, in a sense, we, we do get like a yada, yada, yada in this stanza, right? Bunches of things happen. That's not what's important right now, right? Yeah, they had their, their fate led them to, they did stuff. They didn't just get together and then live happily ever after in the woods, right? They had a they had a fate. They had a journey. It was bad. It was troubling. Sundering seas between them lay. But here's the end of the story. Here's what matters. Long ago they passed away. They passed away together in the forest singing sorrowless, right? Morrowless, the sea rhyme connects with sorrowless in this. That's, that doesn't sound so bad, right? Um... Yes, they're going to go through sorrow. They're going to go through suffering together. But they are going to transform morrowlessness to sorrowless, right? Um, Yes, Marianne, I absolutely agree. The end of this poem, the last line of this poem is a eucatastrophe, right? Um, That's just amazing. Yet at last they met once more and long ago they passed. Notice how within this stanza, the whole projection of their future lives and the long and complicated and troublesome fate, troublous fate that they have mirrors the shape of the earlier part of the poem, right? The spring and summer and then the winter and the division and the separation and the leaves of years are thickly strewn and then the sudden spring comes again, right? We're, we, like this last stanza is like a promissory note on that, right? Yeah, there's a lot more to their story, and some of it is sad. But you know what? Here's what happens at the end. At the end, the sudden spring is going to be released again. They're going to be joined together. She's going to cast her arms like silver, uh, glimmering about him again. And... Uh, it's all going to be good. They're going to be in the forest singing sorrowless. And notice, notice the second to last word of this poem, singing, right? We get the present participle, not as the sea rhyme, because it's not the sea rhyme of this stanza, right? This stanza is set apart. The difference in the sea rhyme is totally enough to set it apart from the entire rest. Of, even if you didn't notice that the plot structure is a little bit different, right? And the whole, you know, the whole narrative structure, uh, different in this stanza, you know, how this stanza is, is, is apart from the rest of them in that way. And yet, um, uh, we get that, li- the, the, the sea rhyme really clinches it, right? But we still, we still get singing at the end. They are, uh, singing. Sorrowless becomes not a, um, Again, moralless sounds like a hopeless end to all the present progressives that we've been getting. The, the, 
the listening and the glistening and the shimmering and the quivering and, and everything else that's been happening over the poem leading forward uh, to these great moments where we're going back to the original words that we used at the beginning of the poem in C rhymes and now Marrowless. Again, sounds like we've come to a dead end. No, we've transformed the dead end into Marrowless and we're singing as we do it, right? Just as uh, we had the, you know, the, 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 you know, her music and her dancing at the beginning. Absolutely, Kate, uh, this, um, this poem is like the star that Sam sees in Mordor. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, that's the message of the end, right? Yeah, in a sense, the whole, like, let's tell the story of their journey to Angband and what they accomplished, and that's inspiring and totally relevant to the situation of four scared hobbits, you know, being pursued by ringwraiths. But you know what? This is what matters, right? Let's jump to the end, guys, right? Yeah, they like, okay, so that he's going to die and then like she's going to die and it's going to be rough and everything. But you know what? Okay, bottom line, long ago they passed away in the forest singing sorrowless. Let us recall, let us maintain the focus on the eucatastrophe here at the end. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so uh, speaking of endings... <laughs> This is the longest exploring Lord of the Rings class I've ever done. Because darn if I was going to stop talking about that poem in the middle. I could not do it. So, uh, okay. So, Valoria is pretty late now. <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not sorry. Um, so, here's what I'm thinking. Um... Yeah, I know. I, I, I idled out like half an hour ago. Uh, totally. Um, can we let's I think we yeah, we, we couldn't just there was there was there were no options here. Veronica <laughs> said it's only 930 in California. Yeah, no problem. Um, <laughs> correspondingly, Veronica, it's already 530 in England. You know, pretty soon they'll be getting up and can join us. Um, I think, uh, why don't we just stop here? I'm not going to try to keep everybody up super late for field trip now, but I'll tell you what. But I don't want to miss Crick Hollow. I feel bad not getting to do our Crick Hollow um, uh, uh, field trip. So maybe we'll, maybe we'll come back and we'll do Crick Hollow again next time. Um, and then we'll, we'll pick up with the with the field trip there next time. We'll just end tonight now. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll, come, we'll, we'll, we'll do Crick Hollow again next week. Does that sound, does that sound fair, Valorie? Think we can do that? Yeah, that sounds good to me. <laughs> Excuse me, I actually didn't. I wasn't intending. Laurie, you know? <laughs> wake up! Wake up and give me your opinion on this. All right, what's yeah. going on? Right, it's perfect. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. No, I uh, was paying attention. I know. I, I was know, totally paying it. attention. I was um, so excited when you got but, to the last uh, dance. <laughs> yeah. So okay. So I think we're. I think we're going to leave it there. We're going to. We'll adjust the calendar. We'll do Crick Hollow next week. And um, okay. Uh, this is going to be great. So next week, next week we're going to do all that other stuff that I was talking about at the beginning. We're going to look sure. at, we're going to come back to the context. We're going to look at Strider's prose version of the story that he gives right after this. Um, mm -hmm. Thinking about this in the context of everything that we've seen in this poem here. And then we're going to go back and we're going to look at the original version of this, uh, of the poem and, and look at sort of the, the, the growth of this story and kind of not just what the story means, but what the growth of this story means. Because I, I you know, I, I think that this is, I think that this poem is at the 
absolute heart of Middle Earth, like the absolute heart of Tolkien's world. Um, and Tolkien himself come to and that. And Tolkien himself, absolutely. So you know, you, get, you just can't just pass up this poem and not not talk about that. No, no, I totally understand why you did. And yeah. uh, hey, so what's your favorite sung version? Who who does your favorite sung version of this? Of this, oh, I don't know. I I I actually. I've never heard a sung version that I love. And the reason mm. is because this poem is so like the rhythm and sound of this poem, like the, the internal rhythm and sound of this poem is so essential to it that I like, and that, no, that's fair. Having when people listen, sing it, they, they like muck with that. Speak it, I'm noticing different things than I do in the song version. Yeah. Yeah. The song, the song, you kind of get swept up in the internal rhyming scream and, and a lot of the imagery, but not so much the story. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, yeah. That's that said. That said, Tolkien, Tolkien ensemble, um, the evening in Rivendell yes. version uh, that, that was done by the Norwegian uh, musician enthusiasts over there. That's my favorite version. Every time that comes down in the car, I'm like, shh, everybody, shut up. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll have to listen to it again. I have the Tolkien Ensemble stuff, um, but it's on I, Spotify I, too. I haven't listened to that in a while. I'll have to go back and 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 hear that one again. Um, that one's in three four too. So. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> cool. Well, that's um, all I have to say about that. <laughs> awesome. Good. Well, again, sorry. So sorry we didn't get to our field trip tonight, but that's all right. We'll make it up it next week. And yep. anyway. It was totally worth it. This was uh, uh, a class I've been looking forward to for months. So uh, um, that's uh, that's really fun. So okay, <laughs> thanks for joining me and bearing with me here. It's funny I, I'm seeing the comments that. Um, uh, oh wait, who was it? Oh yeah, Ambrosius <laughs> Rulianus was just saying we've only been spellbound by Tenuvio for about three hours tonight, which is not very long by Middle Earth standards. Exactly. Uh, yeah, no, yeah. by Elven ballads, this was a limerick. Yeah, well, I mean, and just comparing our experience to uh, uh, to, yeah. to to Baron's experience, right? I mean, look around; like you're not seeing the leaves of years thickly strewn about you, right? So, could have been so much worse. Um, Anyway, all right. So I'm going to sign off. Just don't now. make a ballad of single and melon. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So good night, everybody, and uh, I will see. I will be back next week, and we will we'll talk more about this poem and about its context and about its history. And then I promise we'll actually get to a fight with ringwraiths, you know, sometime before the snow falls up here. So, all right. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Good night. Bye now. Thanks for joining me on this epic exploration of The Lord of the Rings and of Standing Stone's video adaptation of Tolkien's story. If you are having even half the fun I'm having on this journey, I hope you will consider supporting the project by donating at signumuniversity.org slash fund.